4: Hello and welcome to another instalment of Down the Pub. Welcome to the Mary Rose. Uh, We're starting a fray at the edges now. Last week we had a little bit of a bitch and a moan um, because we're all fed up of lockdown. And I think this week we're just going to spend two hours basically cackling at you. Um, There's loads of people in tonight um, as we are going to debate history's most hilarious moment. So Kate Spooner is back. Hey, Kate. Hi. He was on a few weeks ago. Our barfly James is here. It just wouldn't be the same without him hey, uh... now. That guy that just sits at your table in the pub and you're like, where do we know him from? And everyone goes, I don't know. That's James. <laughs> uh, Alina's here. I am here. I am here.
5: And I'm going to be funny for once. Uh, we'll sure be we'll it. the judge of that. Yeah, <laughs> we have Literally. Tim with us, Tim
4: Matthews, who's been with us all week actually, doing the Band of Brothers cast interviews. Hey, Tim.
6: Hello. <laughs> Is
4: that the voice you used in Band of Brothers? No. no. Okay. It wasn't the only voice. Uh, who else have we got? Andrew Dorman's here. Andrew's coming in from Dublin. Hey, Andrew. Hello. He's got My a hilarious Irish story to tell us today, <laughs> which just—it's a must. We've got Stephanie Lyons with us. Yay. Hey, Steph. We have Emma Southern with us. Got like just regular now.
2: Yeah, um, I just live here now.
4: Yeah, she just basically uh is, is turning into an alkie who never leaves the pub. Um, she good yeah. today, and we can't have any, so we're not happy. We have. <laughs> We have Jimmy Chen with us, who is uh, the founder of Napoleonic Impressions. Hey, Jimmy!
7: Hello, glad to be this, here.
4: Does this mean you do impressions of everybody in the Napoleonic Wars? Walk- uh,
7: not quite. What oh. we do is we turn them into animals, and uh, <laughs> such as such as such as uh, Emperor Napoleon Penguin and the Duck of Wellington. <laughs> and,
4: uh, Highly amusing. Field Marshal Kutuzov. Brilliant. And, uh, we also have Andrew Locke with us. I'm just going to call him Locke. There's too many Andrews. Hey, Locke, Battlefield guard, World War historian, uh, and just Beast, really. He's called Big Andy Locke because he's basically four times my size. His forearm is bigger than my thigh. He's a monster. But, um, don't feel intimidated because he's in lockdown and he can't beat you up if you win. So, uh, we also have Charlotte Ward with us. Charlotte used to uh, work at Kensington Palace. She's now at uh, the Lloyds Heritage fund um hey hey charlotte how are you Hi. Uh, yeah good thanks you're we recorded right what did yesterday on uh, queen victoria's <laughs> mad family didn't we um and yes we actually interested in royal history so that was uh, an achievement <laughs> it, <laughs> it was i feel happy as ever our judges are with us we have the not so honorable holmes and dyer who managed to string out a podcast earlier with Pete Brown on the history of beer for us to about an hour and three quarters. Um, so they were happy. Have you yeah, I, don't think
8: I've, I, I don't think I've quite quite recovered, actually. It was quite tiring in the end. But hopefully it was all right.
4: You did actually I'm, I'm slightly entire I'm, history of beer.
8: Yeah, well, that was the plan. I'm slightly distracted by your shelves, Alex. I don't know if you know, but there's been a burglary behind
4: the <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that's the pile where I throw all of the Edward the Eighth books when I get angry with him and go, ah, fucker, and just <laughs> cut them on, on the pile. That's, yeah, that's where he ends up. That's all the respect he gets on my bookshelf. If you look to the side, or the other side, George V's all neatly filed behind the cuddly <laughs> toilet. <laughs> the Edward VIII <laughs> thrown in a corner. Anyway, uh, we're going to discuss today history's most hilarious moment, uh, which is great because it means that there's, uh, people weren't so intimidated by this one. So we have lots more enthusiasts with us today um, as opposed to people who've written books and stuff, which is great. Uh, we're going to try and get round everybody twice. Uh, who am I going to pick on first? I'm going to pick on James first because he's, he's been here every week. You know, uh, James, give us one of yours and start by telling our judges... Okay. One of your most hilarious moments in history.
9: Okay, I'm going to start off with a doozy and also an apology to the people of Australia. Because my first choice for the most hilarious moment in history is the Great Emu War of 1932. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know everyone, already. You know
4: what, I think we might actually be in with a chance this week. Tell everyone why this is so hilarious.
9: Okay, background to the Great Emu War. Uh, all the World War I veterans were becoming farmers. It was the Great Depression, and the Emus liked to migrate to the coast. Suddenly, there's all this lush farmland. Now, you'd think the farmers would go to the Minister of Agriculture. No, they went to the Minister of Depen- uh, Defence, I think Sir George Pierce, something like that, and ask him, Hey, can we have guns and the military to go kill all the Emus? Sir George Pence agrees after getting the farmers. Who, for some reason, decide to sign, saying they'd pay for anything, and they'd be to blame if things go wrong. So the first battle happened, the Battle of Campion. Uh, the Major Meredith and he thinks the think Eighth Artillery Division of Australia sell two Lewis machine guns and go and try and attack the emus while the farmers herd them. They kill a number of birds, but all the emus scatter into little guerrilla groups doing guerrilla warfare. And basically, the soldiers lose the battle. So round one to the emus. There's
4: more than one
9: battle. Yes, there's more than one battle. <laughs> <It's> round two. <laughs> round two, the soldiers decide <clears throat> to ambush over a thousand emus at a local dam. They kill 12 emus before both machine guns dammed, uh, jam. And the emus escape again in little groups. <laughs> saying One soldier slope saying oh, they go into these little groups, the leaders are all these big black birds that don't leave the field until the rest of the group has left. So the soldiers, disheartened by this point, decide to retreat south, where the emus are supposedly tamer. They bolt two machine guns to a truck, thinking they can chase the emus. Now, the emus can run at 40 miles per hour. The truck can only do 24 on level ground and it's rough terrain. So there they are, chasing after the emus with probably the Benny Hill theme tune going on, and they can't fire the machine guns because they can't aim, they can't fire because it's moving around, and basically the battle ends when an emu decides to charge the truck and get its head stuck in the steering wheel. (laughs) By this time, the minister recalls the army, because, obviously, it's embarrassing because it also all been on film. And there is surviving footage, but I'll explain that in a bit. So eventually the farmers go, hey, Minister, can you send them all back out? So the Minister does. This time they're more successful. They kill up to 900 to 1,000 emus. But by this point, they've wasted all their ammunition, 10,000 rounds. And the Minister of Defence, he goes to Parliament, he claims it's this big victory. Hey, we've got all these new feather hats now. We've beat the emus. And the opposing side in Parliament go, hold on, you killed a 1,000 emus. There's still 19,000 emus out there wreaking havoc. And all you've got for it is 100 leather hats. Yeah, I think we're going to call this one for the emus. The opposition even claimed that emus should get medals. And the poor guy that lost to him, Major Meredith, said, if I had a division of, bullet, of um, birds or tanks or people with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, they'd face any army in the world. It was so embarrassing to the media that any media they sent to the UK for newsreels, and this survives, because I've watched it and it's hilarious, they had to edit it to make it look like a big Australian victory. So they lost the war, and then to add insult to injury, somebody goes to them, hey, I've found a way to solve the problem, put a bounty to pay people to hunt them, and also build these better fences. Now, these fences had been around for 50 years already in Australia by this point. So Australia is the only country in the world with a modern army to lose to a pack of discount ostriches. <laughs>
4: Do you know, I'm now googling for the footage because I absolutely have to say I love. It's not even just a scrap that someone called a war; it's a proper war with more than yeah. one battle. And the emus
9: appear. Yeah, to and have the newsreel footage calls it in war as well.
4: <laughs> but they appear to have tactics and NCOs and homes. Have you got any <laughs> questions on this, uh,
8: James? The, the soldiers who were doing the firing—they were first of all war veterans, weren't they?
9: Um. Possibly it was by 1932. So at least the major was, from what I found out. Because, as, yeah. as you know,
8: as, as someone like Alex and Big Andy and Johnny, who's been around and immersed in the First World War for a while, we're used to hearing claims that if it wasn't for Australian soldiers, they were the best soldiers in the in the world, and if it wasn't for them, we'd have lost the war. And I think this paints a very different picture. <laughs> yes,
9: yeah, so it's rather unfortunate. To be fair to the soldiers, they did do their jobs. But it if was you look probably at the minister, that. <laughs>
8: But if you look at yeah. the um, the movie own footage, which I had a quick look at earlier, they're just firing straight at ostriches. There's no enfilade fire, as it would have been taught during <laughs> the first World war. Yes,
9: they had to edit the footage, because <laughs> if you notice the truck one, the truck's standing still, and they've edited it all together. In reality, the truck was moving, and they were trying to fire, and obviously they couldn't fire until this emu decided to get itself stuck in the steering wheel.
4: <laughs> I'm tempted so to what, say that no... Cricket or rugby victory ever could have asked me to go. I call emu,
9: <laughs> yeah. I, I like to think it inspired things like Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner, except the Roadrunner should have been an emu.
8: <laughs> Surely it in- inspired emu, if nothing else.
9: <laughs> yeah, true. true. I mean, my my second choice is going to pale in comparison to this, but it's still quite funny. Okay, we'll come let's back don't get, to the
4: second one. We'll yeah. do round one first. Uh, Johnny, any questions on the emu war? Um,
1: I, not, not a question as such, but an observation. I was just sort of having a, a little bit of a dig around on Google, and apparently Rod Hull was really popular in Australia. And I'm struggling <laughs> to work out why. Maybe, maybe, maybe the, um, mm. the, the veterans enjoyed seeing a man with his hand up an emu's backside. But I, you know, w- the group. Maybe was, that, maybe that would have uh, been a more efficient form of pest control, not fisting. I emu. Just, <laughs> it, very possible, very possible. But um, <laughs> e- excellent, uh, excellently explained, uh, James. And um, I will, uh, we'll move on. Yeah. Um,
4: I'm going to go on to, right, I'll make a, an apology now for that we are going to spend most of this evening laughing at people's unfortunate death scenes from history. And, yeah, we're, we're aware we're all going to hell. But you why it's acceptable when you hear some of them. Uh, so let's go to Jimmy with the story of one um, Polish guy that overreached. He was Polish, right? Or was he Hungarian?
7: He was, he was Polish, but we'll, we'll get to that. OK, go on then, go. Right. So I'm going to take you to Russia, or more properly, uh, Muscovy, in the year 1584. So, Tsar Ivan the Terrible, uh, or more properly Ivan the Fearsome, has just died, and he leaves behind two sons, Fyodor and Dmitry. Now, there would have been a third around, but he died in 1580 under rather unclear circumstances. It's possible that his father bashed him to death accidentally.
4: Yeah, he Um, accidentally caved his skull in, didn't he?
7: Right, as a result yeah. of, um, a, yeah, a, a general rage, which is what uh, Ivan the Terrible was quite famous for. But uh, more recently, some Russian uh, researchers have uh, cast, out, cast out on that. But anyway, so Fyodor becomes uh, up on his father's death. And he wasn't particularly mentally capable, let's say. He enjoyed bell ringing, but not really high politics. So it was his brother-in-law, Boris Godunov. Who's actually running the show? Now, Fyodor has no children, and uh, this this makes the, the succession uh, quite difficult. Especially when we fast forward to 1591, when uh, when his younger brother, a nine-year-old Dimitri, is found dead with his throat cut and a dagger by his side. Now, these circumstances are not. Uh, You wouldn't really call it an accident, but uh, an official delegation arrives from Moscow, led by the boyar uh, Vasily Shusky, to investigate. And he concludes that Dmitry had basically been playing around with a dagger and had accidentally stabbed himself. (laughs) Now, that might seem like a ridiculous conclusion to draw, but apparently back then, uh, in medieval Russia, there was a popular children's game which involved pointing a dagger at yourself. So, make of that what, what you were, really. Um, so, Dimitri is dead, also, we think. Uh, fast forward an, another seven years. Fyodor lingers on until 1598, and he joins his brother in his grave. And now the Rurikid dynasty is completely extinct. I mean, this is a dynasty that's, uh, that started in 862, and mainly thanks to Ivan the Terrible getting rid of all the side branches, it's now. It's now gone, there are no airsoft.
4: And his own branch, unfortunately.
7: Well, indeed. <laughs> so, uh, what do you do? Now, Boris Godunov, having been running the show all the time, is the natural successor, so he's crowned, crowns are. And he doesn't do a bad job, but uh, in 1601, you have a terrible harvest, uh, very cold weather. And this happens for, uh, for the next couple of years as well and essentially terrible famines all across the country. About a third of the Muscovite uh, population dies. Now, many Russians saw this as a manifestation of divine disfavor. Maybe this guy, Godunov, is not the legitimate heir to the throne. And it just so happened that in 1603, a random dude turned up in Poland, claiming that he was in fact Dmitry Ivanovich, the son of Tsar Ivan and the rightful heir to the Russian throne. Now, wait a moment, didn't Dmitry didn't die in 1591? Apparently so. Well, uh, according to this guy, no, because what happened was that he and his mother had heard that Godunov was uh, ordering assassins to kill him. So they escaped and basically replaced him with another kid which, who looked a, lot, a bit like him. And, then, and it was that kid who was the one who had his throat cut. Poor kid, but anyhow. So Dmitry turns up in Poland and and tries to get uh, King Sigismund to furnish an army for him. Now Sigismund wasn't terribly interested, but a bunch of ambitious Polish nobles were, because Polish nobles tend to be quite ambitious with an elected monarchy and everything. So uh, Dmitry began to assemble this ragtag army of Poles and invaded Muscovy in 1604. Uh, Vowing to make Russia great again. Now, Godunov hears about this and he laughs it off and says, This is no Dmitry, it's just a random Polish monk called uh, Grigory Otropiev. But uh, he's currently under a lot of pressure. There are a lot of uprisings in the country because of all the famine. And they're happy enough to join the banner of someone who's turned up and declares himself to be the, the rightful heir. Now, Godunov's forces initially hold their own, but in April 1605, Boris Godunov suddenly dies. Now, no one really knows what happened, but uh, Alexander Pushkin in his play suggests that uh, maybe he's been racked with guilt, that he's ordered this, this murder, and somehow this guy has just resurrected himself and is now uh, um, trying to claim his throne, and he's frightened to death. And the Tsar, the death of Tsar Boris basically opens the way for Dmitry to, uh, to take over. Within six weeks, he turns up in the Kremlin with his Polish army, and they arrest uh, Godenov's son, Fyodor, who's, ta- who's taken over, and execute him rather horrifically. And Dmitry is now the new Tsar, the rightful heir to his father's throne. See at this
4: That's... point Alina loves this story because now there's now a Polish guy on the Russian throne.
5: Always. Like... come on, Poles are better than <laughs> Russians any day. <laughs>
7: well, so 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 yeah, we've got we've got this, uh, Dmitry, who's uh he's he's ruling for a while, but then people start to uh, start wondering, hang on a minute, why why has he surrounded himself with so many Polish advisors? This this uh make Russia great again agenda doesn't sit very very well with this Polish political in, uh, interference. Mm-hmm. Um, and the final straw comes when the Tsar marries a Polish princess, Marina Mniszek, um, who refuses to convert to Russian Orthodoxy from, uh, from Roman Catholicism. And this is a huge issue for the Russians. So, Shusky, our, our old friend, uh, who turns up again, and he basically issues a proclamation saying this guy's a uh, usurper, we should get him, uh, we should get rid of him. And that is indeed what happens. A couple of weeks after the Tsar's marriage, a mob storms the Kremlin uh, looking for the Tsar. And the newlywed uh, couple jump out of a window, but uh, Dmitry trips and basically hurts his ankle. And he hobbles for a while, but he's soon caught up by the mob and is apprehended. He's taken captive and hanged, and his body is initially put on display, as would happen in most European countries at this time. But the authorities, because it's brilliant. But the authorities, who are now under Vasily Shuisky's uh, control as Tsar Vasily IV, they decide this is not quite good enough. They burn the body and they place the ashes into a muzzle of the cannon, they point it towards Poland and fire it there, as to say, come back from where you come from.
4: <laughs> Brilliant. Johnny, any questions?
1: Yeah, that, that's all a bit of a shit show really, isn't it? Um, I, I, it's obviously the first I've heard of this, just having a, a kind of a look through. Um, this apparently, it's not the this was the first and the most successful, apparently this happened again.
7: Yes, there were, th- well, there are three documented false Dmitry's, but there are probably more who were not given a regnal number. Um, <laughs> and the second false Dmitry actually turns up three years later, 15, uh, 1608, uh, in southern Russia. And then Marina uh, mnishek the Tsarina, recognizes him as as her as her husband goes to join him and they actually have a child um so you know if this if this guy was really Dimitri, he would have, uh, he would have somehow come back from the dead twice
1: excellent excellent okay uh, well thank you james that's, uh, that's very
8: good um, it it all sounds a bit russian east enders to me if you were i <laughs> think <laughs> really the um the, the the sort of the first um, Dmitry was. Do we know if he was real or not? His claim was genuine.
7: Um, it's generally believed that uh, he was in fact he was in fact an uh, usurper, and it's generally believed that uh, the um, that uh, Dmitry Ivanovich did die in 1591, or at least if he didn't the Russian Orthodox Church is going to have a massive problem because they've, um, you know, canonised him and placed his um, relics in, you know, uh, very uh, honourable places. So um, if that is not Dmitry, then, uh, yeah, we have a problem.
8: Yeah, you wouldn't want to be in their shoes, I think. Uh, Nothing further from me. Mm. Uh,
4: Who should we go to next? Uh, Let's get one from Lockie.
0: Ah, all right. Um, so, well, slightly uh, more serious,
4: but still uh, funny, nonetheless. Yeah, you think?
0: I suppose so. I mean, because I try to avoid doing comedy deaths or, yeah. or something.
4: No, no, uh, yours are hilarious, but yours have quite profound... Um, one of them, at least, has quite profound results. So give us... Anyone. Give us either of them first. Uh,
7: all
0: right, let's do... I guess the shorter of the two, Um, I I guess this one's going out to Alina really, because her topic is not one that we can really laugh at very much, but I do think Nazis are fair game, um, generally, Uh, and and so I'm going to get one who, we've got this thing at our rugby club, um, an award that we give out every year, it's called the Lord Cardigan Award, uh, that we give out to some breathtaking moment of of stupidity or self-harm or, or something like that. And and um, of the Nazis that we can take the piss out of, I think, well, there's, there's quite a few of them at a the fair game, I guess. Uh, Goering's guns or butter speech of 19... 19- Thirty-five or whenever it is, he gives it. In which he says, "No, we're not going to raise living standards because they'll just we'll just get fat when we want to get strong. So we're going to have guns rather than butter." And that speech coming from the fattest man in the world um, <laughs> is ridiculous. But I think Rudolf Hess is actually going to be my guy because um, it's remarkable what he does. It is actually remarkable what he does—taking an aeroplane and flying it from Bavaria to Scotland on the on the assembling effort that you might be able to end your war on one front so that you can crack on with another one i mean what does he what does he do um he's not quite out of favor um by this stage but you know some of the some of the selling points that saw him kind of rise up through the nazi ranks uh kind of pass their sell by day i mean he speaks fluent english which is nice um, uh, from a f- kind of foreign policy point of view, then that's maybe worth something. Um, very loyal uh, indeed, which is, which is obviously going to be good, but not necessarily the sharpest tool in the box, uh, unfortunately. Um, we get to May 1941, and, and having had the conversation with a few people uh, around him with the failure to invade Britain the previous year, let's buzz over and try and negotiate a peace, Something like that. So into his own BF110 he gets, he flies over to Scotland. And there's there's a little bit of debate, I think, about who he was actually trying to go over and, and see. But I think the, the Duke of Hamilton, um, it is he was aiming for, based on the fact that he'd met him, um, which is nice. But uh, I think they'd met, five years earlier at the 1936 olympics and had a conversation um there was another hamilton uh, though sir ian hamilton of gallipoli fame had also met several high-ranking nazis so we're not, we're not totally sure which one he was going for um but but the duke of hamilton is is looking like the the most likely based on where he was sort of aiming for anyway Uh, Over he flies, taking his his 110, uh, which just about has the range to reach Scotland uh, from Bavaria. Um, Of course, he gets lost because he he flies over Scotland at night time, can't find exactly where it is he wants to set down, realising Scotland's not exactly pancake flat, you know, there's rocks and trees and stuff all over the place. He decides, well, and running out of fuel. As well, he decides I'm not going to chance a, a, a landing somewhere where there might be a whole load of rocks. Uh, so he uh, unclips, undoes the, the the harness. He's on his own. He hasn't got a, a gunner or anything in his in his plane with him. Rolls over, levers himself out, and uh, and parachutes down. Um, twists his angle. He's never done that before either. Uh, never never done a parachute jump before. And he said he really enjoyed the experience later, which is which is weird enough. Um, but he twists his ankle on landing and then it just gets more and more bizarre um, because he's picked up by some locals and taken off to someone's house where they try and make him a cup of tea and he says, no, thank you, I don't drink tea after dark. All right. Um, then he's, uh, they get in touch with the local home guard and it is very Dad's Army-like from from there on. So, yeah, imagine your, your U-boat captain, um, uh, with the Dad's Army, your name will also go on the list. Uh, I, I've got a scene like that in my mind, um, and uh, as it t- and all the whole time, he's he's claiming not to be Rudolf Hess uh, as well. He's given he's given some false name. He's Captain.
5: Call
4: himself. Fortunately, the Nazi propaganda machine might have shot him in the foot at some stage. You would have think.
0: Well, there is that because they spend the whole time saying, "Really?" Because you. Look a lot like Rudolph Hess. He's like, no, oh, no, I'll get that a lot. <laughs> <he> <laughs> <says>. <laughs> um, so yeah, eventually he they he's a bit, he's a bit worried at one point because he thinks the uh, home guard commander's drunk and he's going to shoot him. Um, but he gets uh, he gets taken off an interview. He does get his meeting with the the Duke of Hamilton. who was like, well, oh, I've got nothing to do with this at all, um, and. Uh, and then it transpires as he kind of, he's insisted that um, he, he's wanted to speak to this Hamilton. And as the kind of interviews go on, it becomes clearer and clearer that he is Rudolf Hess. Um, so he drops the, drops the pretense um, uh, enough to make that clear. What is he over to do? He's here to negotiate a peace. Does the Fuhrer know that you're here? Oh, no, no, no. This is nothing to do with the Fuhrer. Well, if you're not speaking for the Führer, why the hell would we talk to you about some peace? So that's another moment of stupidity um, from him. So there's never any prospect of him getting any kind of serious negotiations done. Uh, so what do we do? We take him off to the Tower of London and stick him in there for a few days. And I've got this—I've got another sort of class image of uh, like the yeoman warders, having met a few of them, you know, because they do their their grim history stuff and they love yep. their dark history around there. I could just imagine them say, "Oh, let me." tell you about mm, the first Duke of Monmouth that we kept in uh, a room along here. Uh, do you know what happened to the first Duke of Monmouth? We chopped his head off very brutally. And to, to tell him a few stories uh, like that in the, in the days that he was kept there uh, while they prepped something more permanent uh, for him, we uh, it got, it got one more moment of stupidity. When it became very clear that he wasn't going to meet anyone senior and serious and talk about anything, then he tried to make a break for it. Uh, one day, um, tried to run out of um, the room he was being kept, uh, actually tripped over and broke his leg as he was doing this. So this is a total cluster catastrophe of hopelessness. Um, That he
4: basically did to himself.
0: Exactly. And it couldn't happen to a nicer bloke either. So uh, there you go. That's my series of hilarious moments with Rudolf Hess. What a twat.
4: Holmes go for so many questions one is why but yeah
8: gone. That, that's sort of the main one I suppose but I quite like the fact that he, he sort of gave himself away by he said he didn't drink tea after dark which reminded yeah. me of that <laughs> that German spy that got caught that time ordering a gin and tonic in a pub at 10 in the morning <laughs> <laughs>
3: um,
8: but um, yeah I, I mean he wasn't acting there was no chance that you know whatever his intentions were, a, a bit of me thinks he was just trying to get out of it and you know his messages of peace were just a cover for that really.
0: Well I don't know because there's some other weird stuff around it because years later Galland um, comes forward and says Adolf Galland fight the pilot commander ace um he comes forward and said oh the night that Hess flew Goering had got in touch with him saying Hess is making a break for England go and shoot him down it was too late to do anything about it um so that that kind of points to the fact that the regime knew that he was flying over um for some reason Hess himself had left the note saying you know if if it goes wrong you can you can deny everything and, and just tell them I'm mad well we are reasonably happy to do that thing, <laughs> yeah, as, it, as it happens, but um yeah so it does point to a bit of knowledge um uh in the in the sort of yet higher echelons um his, and, i well, mean
8: look, he he lived for quite a while as well, didn't he didn't he live in he was then sent back to Germany at some point, and he was yeah, still, they, they wasn't started... he spanned out prison on his yeah. own for ages.
0: Yeah, that's it. So they stuck him on trial at Nuremberg, um, and they couldn't do him for being part of the, you know, the final solution and a lot of the kind of crimes against humanity and stuff like that, because he was, you know, banged up by them. But um, uh, they, oh, I can't remember what charge they did him. being part of the conspiracy, uh, I think. And he, he got a life jail sentence, which he, yeah, largely served in, in Spandau um, until he hanged himself in 1987, was it? Was, was he ever due to be let out, do you know? I don't think so. Was it about a life sentence?
4: Yeah. <laughs> what a knob! <laughs> <laughs> it's like, can you? Do you know what though? Part of me wants <laughs> to a fly on the wall. If you're the Duke of Hamilton and you open your front door and there's like one of the highest-ranking doctors of all standing there, going, "You all right, mate?" You'd be like, "What the
10: fuck <laughs> is going on here?" <laughs>
1: um.
4: Yeah. Okay. Any questions, Johnny?
1: Um. I, I'm. Thanks, Andy. That was uh, that was that was fascinating. Um, I'm I'm assuming that when word of this got to Hitler, he probably wasn't best pleased.
0: Uh, no, he wasn't. Um, and there's an account from Speer, I think it is, who says that um, yeah, he, he flew off the handle. Although he, he, if he knew about it before, he probably flew off the handle that because. Hess has he been banged up and there's absolutely no prospect of him talking, you know, about any His offer of peace was basically the same one that, that Hitler had offered the year before when they said, yeah, guarantees for the British Empire, um, providing you leave us alone in Europe. Uh, but Hess had already spoken through, you know, advisors about what, what the mm. prospects of the British agreeing to that were. It was zero, absolutely nothing, <laughs> because, you know, Hitler's made plenty of guarantees and we're not buying not. anymore. anymore well,
1: <laughs> no. uh, okay thank you
4: <laughs> yeah i think that definitely is a, a case for massive bellend behavior there uh let's do one more and then we'll go refill our drinks uh kate give us one of yours
10: okay so um let's go for the spaghetti tree hoax first so this is kind of a lot less death like and more lighthearted than some of the others but it also feels a bit less sort of historical now I've heard the others as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically it was a, a two and a half three minute report that they put on Panorama in 1957 um, which was it was thought up by one of the cameramen and he produced this report. Um, it basically shows a family in Switzerland, the Italian and the narrator, Richard Bumblebee, describes the bumper crop as being the result of a mild winter and the virtual disappearance of the spaghetti weevil. Um, he also describes how a late frost can impair the flavour of the spaghetti that they are growing on trees. Um, And you see the spaghetti being laid out to dry in the sun, and he describes how the uniform length is the result of many years' endeavour by plant breeders, and he does all this in his perfect BBC accent, of course, Um, and they pull it off, and 8 million people watch the broadcast, and hundreds of people believe them, and phone up the BBC to ask how they can cultivate their own spaghetti tree. (laughs) <laughs> the BBC tell them to. The BBC basically told them to put a sprig of spaghetti in a tin of tomato sauce and hope for the best. Um, it was shown on April Fool's Day, and it was just. It was just a big hoax. Um, but so many people believed it, and I thought it was very funny.
4: <laughs> part of me is really indignant knowing that you can't even get a cab fare out of the BBC if you're filming something for them now let alone 100 pounds to go and make a fake report about a load of spaghetti. <laughs> Johnny any questions?
1: Um, no I um, it's 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 certainly an intriguing story and it's one of those things that that kind of crops up every every April Fool's Day. Um I think we may be judging the, the British public harshly, albeit that we are capable of, um, of collective stupid decisions on uh, on occasion as, as still demonstrated today. Um, but I think it, it may be a little bit harsh to judge people because I suspect very, very few of the British public had ever seen Pastor before in their lives. No,
10: no, um, I mean, it was... It was basically, they, if they saw it, it was, it was in a tin with tomato sauce and it was considered a bit of a delicacy and a bit sort of exotic. So I suppose it was easy enough to pull off, but um, I just think somebody thinking it up is incredible.
1: I, do, I have to say, um, full full credit for whoever did that, because that, that, that is a stroke of genius at the time, definitely. So thank you, it was wonderful. <laughs> Holmes. Yeah, the, the people who were taken it, was there any sort of backlash afterwards? When people realised that
8: they'd been fooled, were they all right about that or was there any sort of um, outcry?
10: I don't think so. I think, I mean, I think, I don't know. I suppose people realised sort of gradually, you know. Um, but no, I, I don't think there was any backlash. Some people found up sort of questioning the truth of it. Um, but, yeah, I think it was taken, taken lightheartedly. I think it was taken in good spirits. This is
4: back when people had a sense of humour before some spaghetti activist group came forward um, to protect <laughs> I, um, interest.
1: I like um, I like I like the, the concept of people realising gradually. I, I'm just sitting watching this vision of a, a sort of a slightly sort of grey couple in, in 1950s clothing on the on the fourth week of <laughs> the, yeah, the, the spaghetti in the tin of tomorrow. I reckon we've been adding, you know.
4: Brilliant. Uh, okay, so let's just get another drink each and then we can carry on.
9: I got my alcohol now and I've got a tea. My brother made me a tea,
4: so <laughs> you are currently drinking cider and tea at the same time. Alina's just admitted that she's drawn a face on her vodka bottle and talked to it. <laughs> uh, any more revelations?
9: Uh, my dog's back okay.
4: <laughs> Hurrah, we appear to have lost home.
9: Very careless.
0: I am.
4: <laughs> Misplaced an no. Right, we really are back from our drinks break now. And we're going to go to Ireland. We're going to go to... I feel like I'm doing Eurovision voting now. Uh, let's go to Dublin
3: <laughs> to speak oh, to Andrew. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Class. So, Andrew Dorman, you've got two great ones. Just pick either one. Give us one of yours. E-
3: either. Um, I suppose I'll do the country proud first before I take the piss out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, yep. <laughs> All right, uh, so we're we're taken to 18th century Ireland, um, which at the best of times is a fairly interesting place. And we're seated in the city of Cork, which um, as you may or may not be aware, has a bit of a rivalry with Dublin where I'm from. So obviously I'm very biased against them in this story, which is why they come across as feckin' idiots. <laughs> um, so the story I'm gonna tell you is the story of the first ever hot air balloon flight in Cork. Uh, so hot air balloon wise um this was the i think the first flight was the montgolfier brothers in france in about 1783 ish uh so this takes place in 1784 so a year after and cork at the time was fairly wild at the best of times uh at one stage a group of prisoners tried to escape from prison but they were caught because they were arguing too loudly about who was going to go through the window first um, several, duck, several duck hunters forgot that musket balls keep going once you've missed and end up gunning down several members of the population across the harbor. Uh, so there's an air of tension in the city at the best of the time, so to speak. So then several balloonists realize that Cork is a very good place to launch a hot air balloon. So they decide to set one up at a place near Mardike at about four o'clock. And it travels for 18 miles. It's a big success, but they haven't told everyone in town. And one guy in particular, uh, a man called John Moynihan, uh, sees the balloon flying overhead and decides to follow it because he's he's no idea what's going on. He just sees this large sphere, perhaps red, depending on the account you read, soaring across the city. And he comes across it and it's it's landed uh, up against a cliff and the ropes have gone everywhere. So he he thinks it's the devil that's been enchained on this hillside by ropes. Uh, So the balloonists, they eventually turn up and they take it back to this building where they then display it. And the Denzians of Cork flock to see this thing. And a lot of them are convinced that it is the devil incarnate, really doing the intellect of the Irish proud here uh, in the 1780s. (laughs) So eventually, um, it, nighttime night time arrives, and the people of Cork are still marveling over this thing. And someone, for some reason, and the account is a little bit sketchy, depending on which primary source you read, either a torch is thrown at it from a god fearing c- uh, citizen, or a spark lands on it. We're not sure which is which, and the thing explodes, uh, destroying the house it's in, and most of the people around it are very badly burnt, and then the rest of the Denzians of Cork who see this are completely convinced that it was the devil. Because <laughs> why else would it have caught fire in this fiery explosion? Um, and suffice to say, the balloon flighting in Cork kind of suffered from a, a series of unfortunate events after that. The second one relatively successful, the third one burnt down 100 houses. So I guess it was cursed after that <laughs> at the best of times.
4: Ireland uh, pioneers of balloon flight. Die
1: <laughs> yeah um i'm, I'm guessing that the that hot air ballooning didn't take off to pardon the pun um, in ireland for quite some time after that
3: well as i say there were two other notice notable ones afterwards i think it's something to do with the um uh, ge- geography of cork that made mm. it quite popular maybe i don't know atlantic winds or something um but yeah they, it seemed to be relatively successful
1: <laughs> but i mean they're, they're after those two incidents i'm guessing that it wasn't
3: no, not so much. It, was, it wasn't. It wasn't a big thing. Um,
1: no. I, I, I there was a point about this evening where I, I certainly thought we need we need questions, but actually there's going to be a lot of incredulous silence. I think. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay, right. No further questions. Thank you for that. Hi. happy to.
8: The, the,
1: the balloon. It wasn't manned,
8: was it? The balloon?
3: Um, I don't think so. Because the, the, the what
8: Golfier Brothers one was, wasn't
3: it? I, I thought they had animals in it.
8: Well, that sort of manned. Beast <laughs> beasted. <laughs> beast yeah,
3: yeah, it was beast. I'm not sure I, the account ever didn't see say if you want to ever read it, it said Tucky's Corp Remembrance has the story of it in it. Um but they just describe um it was. No, it was it, it just seems to be unmanned. So just I do like time. it I
8: mean it's one of those I, I think sometimes it's all right with the benefit of hindsight but we have to accept that in the old days people were just a bit rubbish sometimes we? Yeah. you know I, I think I was saying to Alex I don't think anyone's bringing this story to the table tonight but I, the first ever escalator in the UK was opened in Harrods in something like 1904 and it was only 12 foot and people were so freaked out when they went up it they had people handing out smelling salts and seats and blankets and sips of brandy at the top which is just you know that goes into the old people were rubbish in the old days category that i can't quite like
4: yeah people (laughs) on the first underground as well where the carriages were open and it was steam trains in the tunnels and they came out like blackened with certain stuff It's not exactly if you're on your way to a job interview you wouldn't go by tube put it that way
8: well also wasn't it the first you know, with the first train, it went at something like six miles an hour or something like that, and people said you shouldn't go on that because your head will get blown off. But it's like <laughs> the horses go way faster than that. Yeah.
4: <laughs> or the one where if you were over, what was it ten miles an hour in a car, and someone had to walk in front of the car waving a red flag? <laughs> red flag. <laughs> yeah, is the object of getting anywhere faster. Uh, yeah, right. Okay, let's do one of Emma's. Um, I think Emma's are quite short and sweet today, but she's inevitably going to be ancient.
2: They are an ancient. They're all Roman, obviously. Um, so my first one is about the Emperor Tiberius. And the things that you need to know about the Emperor Tiberius in order to truly appreciate the story are one, that he was very big. He's a very big man. Um, he's not just tall. Um, he is Kind of just generally massive, like one of those men with big hands, and just kind of slightly. Oh, yeah, exactly. Holding up his massive, <laughs> <Lockie> lucky <laughs> holding up his massive hands are. Um, yeah, like a big man, um, and he is kind of um, uncomfortable in his own skin all the time. So he also kind of walks with a stoop and shuffles in an uncomfortable manner. So he's generally uncomfortable to be around, and he's also a very very grumpy man. He's not known to enjoy anything at all. Um, he just is grumpy. If you cracked a joke at him, he would just stare at you. He just is not a happy, joyful man to be around. He's just quite miserable.
4: Um, I did non-battlefield tours with Lockie when he's run out of port. <laughs> 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 like, yeah, very familiar.
2: He's a large man in a permanently bad mood and he's like a, a really angry head teacher all the time. He's just cross um, and stern and just a, a total fun sponge. Like no one has fun around him. Um, and this is also, he is this kind of second emperor. He inherits from the throne from Augustus. He didn't really want to be emperor. He's sort of the like last man standing, basically by accident. Um, but he doesn't really know how to deal with people kind of acting as they do around an emperor. Um, And one day he um, was kind of, walking happily going well shuffling miserably um going about his life um and a guy a senator came up to him and attempted to kind of beg his uh, intervention on some matter the matter is not sadly recorded so you can imagine for yourself what he was desperately intervening with um and threw himself at Tiberius's massive knees and Tiberius was so horrified by somebody throwing themselves at his knees that he took a step backwards fell over his own toga um and rolled down some steps <laughs> That's it I love it It's so helpful <laughs> <Yeah, yeah>. yeah. <laughs> Tell me the toga Unravelled as well Just for. I comments. hope so Because togas are like several meters long and very very heavy um and if you can watch videos of um people like putting them on on you can't put one on by yourself because they're so massive it'd be like a
1: loo
0: roll rolling down the stairs yeah exactly so he just trips
2: right over goes (laughs) straight down um so he's big he's grumpy and now he's falling down the stairs (laughs) (laughs) oh but you know
4: what it is simple but i love it i'm so simple but it's perfect (laughs) down
2: the
4: stairs dire
1: um I, it's it's interesting that it, it's recorded were, 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 were there many roman pratfalls that were recorded for posterity or?
2: <laughs> not as many as i'd want um uh, <laughs> there is another one about caligula getting into a huff um because um uh i think it's a gladiator or a charioteer shouts something at him and he tries to storm out of the uh, theater and falls down some steps that's the only other one i can think of
1: <laughs> excellent i it's when you when you start describing Describing Tiberius, the first thing that, that sprung to mind was he's had like a Roman version of Greg Davis's character in The Between Us, Mr. Gilbert. Yes, he is just big, grumpy and ungainly.
2: Yeah, but without the charm. <laughs> 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 and like distinctly lacking in charm. Um, Excellent. No one likes him. He, not even his wives. Um. Yeah,
1: you know what? I, 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 I like simple. And, and, and a Roman pratfall, <laughs> chap downstairs, good. losing toga. Love it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's excellent. Thank you.
4: <laughs> Holmes, any questions?
1: It,
8: did anything happen to the bloke who went to, um, who, who bent down in front of him, who approached his knees?
2: No, but I imagine that he potentially just lay down and died of horror right there. Um, as far as I know, nothing happened to him. Which is um, kind of unusual
8: because they used to kill people for looking at their olive oil jar in a funny way back in those times. So
2: Tiberius, L- Tiberius did love killing people for funny things. Tiberius once had somebody executed for going to the loo with a coin with Augustus's head on it in his pocket. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> which makes that um, fall even funnier. It does.
1: <laughs> I imagine the trial.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Like, uh, how do you defend yourself against that? Speaking of trials,
4: Tim, you've got, I love this one. For some reason, this one, I just sat there giggling and snorting to myself for about half half hour after you sent me the link. Tell us your first one.
6: Right, so very, very scantily researched, because I don't normally do this, so I'm not going to sound nearly as eloquent about this as, as any of you. <clears throat> uh, but it's called the Cadaver Synod, which is exactly what it sounds like. I didn't know what a synod was, but I'm assuming most of you do, do you? Pretty much. Where
4: Some kind of drink, ecclesiastical yeah. ecclesi- yeah. uh, drinking, ecclesiastical court, right?
6: Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, so back in the 9th century, Pope Stephen VI of Rome uh, ordered that uh, one of the, the body of one of his predecessors be exhumed, brought to the papal court and put on trial for <laughs> uh, illegal accession and uh, perjury so this was a, a proper trial this person had been dead for seven months so probably wasn't particularly well groomed at this point uh, but they were strapped to like a throne i think and uh, they were <laughs> they were appointed a deacon to def- to speak on their behalf to answer charges and questions apparently that was sufficient because they found him guilty um, and then they divested him of his of his papal stuff vestments and uh, cut three of his fingers off the ones that he'd been using to bless people when he was alive, and buried him in uh, as uh, as a layman, which he, they they claimed he'd always been. Uh, <laughs> so they buried him out with the foreigners, probably next to like Jesus and Siddhartha, I guess. Um, but that wasn't enough. No. They had him dug up again, because I don't think that was enough of a humiliation, and they they tied weights to his body and chucked him in the river. So, of course, he showed up further downstream and um, apparently started performing miracles, uh, which caused quite the stir, as you'd imagine. And um, then I I, I don't know what happened at this point, but it led to Pope Stephen, the idiot who put him on trial in the first place, being uh, put in prison, where he was strangled to death. So I think the whole thing was just a big prank by the body of, uh, who was it? I can't even remember who it was. Um,
4: Let's call him Dave.
6: Pope Formosus. I reckon he just came back. Once he'd been dug up, he thought, right, I'm not having this, you pricks. <laughs> and uh, started pranking them all. And ended up, by the way, being, being buried finally in St. Peter's Basilica, which I reckon was always what he was after. That's what it was about. So there you go. Yeah, uh, a dead person being put on trial, found guilty, and uh, getting his own back, I guess.
4: (laughs) I just love the fact that cutting off three fingers after he's been dead for months already was deemed as a punishment of some kind.
0: Well, we've done that, haven't we? We we did that with Cromwell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He was he was dug out of Westminster Abbey, stuck on trial for the regicide of Charles the First, and they found him guilty. He was. Your your silence only incriminates you further, Mr. Cromwell, um, <laughs> really? and and cut his head off and stuck it on a spike and hung his body in a cage. No, oh. that was 1660.
4: Well, I don't have a problem with any of that.
6: <laughs> I get it? Well, no, quite. I think to be to be uh, to give some context, I I infer from this that they did all of that because these were all things that meant that posthumously. He he, could not be credited with all of the things he did when he was alive. So they had to uh, all of the power that he'd exercised while he was alive was then taken away. All the all the the acts the actions that he'd uh, made, so you know all the blessings he'd given and all of the, the decisions he'd made as pope were there, thereby n- uh, nullified by cutting his what fingers. off. The him?
4: many thousands <laughs> of people that have been blessed by him, you're already pissed off, aren't you, at this? <laughs> yeah.
6: <laughs> They were the ones further down the river who were claiming that it was performing miracles.
4: Yeah, I have to tell you, so my brother and I went on a little tour of to the not long after John Paul died, Pope John Paul, and they were selling all of the merchandise in the Vatican gift shop cheap because he died, like the calendars, the John Paul calendars, and they obviously replaced <laughs> by a new guy. So me and my brother took a massive close-up of a picture of John Paul II and we texted it to my mum and we said, oh, we just met the Pope. And she was like, oh, rubbish. And we were like, no, 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 you can ask for a blessing from the Pope. You can do that when you go to the Vatican. We asked for a blessing for Adam's eczema. And my mum went into work, showed everybody this picture of the Pope that we'd apparently taken
11: when we met him,
4: until someone in our office went, um, he died. And we just got a text back saying, bastards. <laughs> <laughs>
6: off blessings, was it, that day?
4: It was! There was a whole bargain bucket of John Paul II merchandise. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of incredulous on his behalf when I saw that. Holmes Dyer, any questions?
1: Um, I'm sort of intrigued, in terms of the the Synod, I'm intrigued to know whether there were at least one or two doubters sort of stating the obvious that he's already dead, or or was this a unanimous, he must
6: be tried? I have no idea because I didn't do any research
3: but... <laughs> that's, that that's, Ali- just like that's
6: Alina that's Alina's answer
1: <laughs> excellent no I, I'm just I am I'm, I think I'm going to have to read all this because I'm curious if they, if they all went along with it or if there was just one bloke sitting there saying I think we're wasting that's our time right, here lads <laughs> seems a bit of a rum idea to me this stinks
7: <laughs> <laughs> literally
8: <laughs>
1: excellent
6: thank I like you that that. Wonderful. I, know. I think you'll find it's uh, poor old po-
8: I imagine it was, given the febrile atmosphere at the time, it's probably not the done thing to sort of stick your hand up in protest, I imagine. You might be next. You might be next. lose your three fingers, so to speak. But I guess so. I think, I think as, a, as a qualified lawyer, I, I take slight issue with your description of it being a proper trial, to be honest. There <laughs> are a, a few flaws that I can probably see in that, you know.
6: Did I say that? I don't know what the qualifications were at that point for a proper trial. I mean, just being in court, presumably, I guess that's why he was there. Um, maybe that they couldn't do anything without a physical presence, which is odd for, a, you know, something that found, found as itself, essentially on non-physical reality. You know, the fact that, I mean, what was on trial? Was it the body or the, or the spirit? It's a bit of a... Um, <laughs> that, <isn't> it? Yeah. <laughs> Alex how long have we got
11: <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> getting <a> really full <laughs> time isn't
7: that <laughs> <laughs> <Talk. Does> <laughs> what they're talking about <laughs>
4: <laughs> no so let's move on uh, right who hasn't had their first one yet uh, Lena go on give us one of yours and it better be better than your argument for the wheel last week where you just listed everything invented <laughs> that had a wheel well
5: I've done one that's really good and I'm going to leave that one for later because that's like so much better um, <clears throat> but I'm going to do the really shit one first Get the shit one out of the way So we're going to talk about snakes Holmes, Not a trouser snake, alright Get your mind out of the gutter <laughs> <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's more about cobras Don't ask me any questions about this Because I don't care and I don't know I just found the story And it sounded really cool So that when the British were in India And they were in Delhi there was a massive problem of like loads and loads of cobras. So what they did was they basically turned around and went, wow, yeah, if you guys go and kill these cobras, we'll give you money for like cobra corpses. Um, So people were like getting all these cobras, killing them, you know, bringing all this kind of money back. And they're thinking, shit, man, they're getting loads and loads and loads of cobras. What's happening? Well, what the people were actually doing, they were breeding the cobras Okay, and then killing the breeded cobras to get more money, and then the British were just like, we've got to stop this. And then in the end, what actually happened was there was three times as many cobras, so it was just completely pointless. It was just shit. So there you go. That is my shit one. Thank you very much. Good night.
8: I I, I, suddenly, I couldn't remember halfway through that whether that was your shit or your good, your good one. So I'm quite <laughs> glad that you've come on and said that was your shit one now, because... Otherwise, I was struggling to ask questions. Why did they? Want, why did the British want to get rid of cobras? Just because they were they're poisonous. Many people.
5: Yeah, they're poisonous. Basically, they wanted to get rid of the poisonous snakes.
1: Okay, Johnny, <laughs> I'm deploying my incredulous silence face.
5: <laughs> Perfect, because my next one is like ten times better. Alex knows it, and Tim and I had a discussion about it the other night. So. They know, and it is funny, and it is so much better, and it's a much better story. But Alex was like, "You need to get a second one in." I was like, "Oh, I don't know." So I researched this one for like two minutes.
4: Stephanie, what about we you? Tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we couldn't tell much.
11: Is it me? It is. Okay, okay. So Alina made me do this. So thanks. You <laughs> You're welcome. It's still um, opening. Oh, great, thanks. Um, so we're going to nineteen thirty-eight. Um, This event was sort of the first big fake news of the 20th century, Um, so much so um, it spread all across the globe. Even Adolf Hitler apparently commented on this during a speech when he said it was an example of the corrupt condition and decadent state of affairs in democracy, which is ironic given Hitler and the Nazis were big users of propaganda and fake news. But anyway, um, to start uh, the quote that you you all might be familiar with. Um, We know now that the early years of the 20th century, this world has been watched closely by intelligence greater than man and yet as mortal as his own. That's right, I'm talking Martians. (laughs) H.G. Wells, the war of the world. On the eve of Halloween 1938, Orson Welles adapted The War of the Worlds* into a radio program where they effectively convinced a lot of people that there was actually an invasion of sorts happening in New Jersey, in America, with a combination of great scripting, pacing, musical cues and acting performances, it caused chaos. Um, which led to police entering the studio to try and stop the broadcast. There was a a mayor in a Midwestern town that called in to tell them of riots in the streets. Um, The CBS switchboard was alight with people wanting to find out what was going on. And what makes this even more hilarious was the fact that during the course of this show, four announcements were actually made that this was just a dramatisation of HG Wells' War of the Worlds. But unfortunately, if you had tuned in at that time, a couple of minutes later, you would have just have heard normal programming being intercepted with news bulletins of all of this weird and wild, crazy things going on. Um, It's the most most recent, I think... um, example in the 20th century of how radio was used to, radio and media was used to spread fake news. There you go. <laughs> Short <and sweet. laughs> I love it. I love the idea of everybody
4: running around in the street screaming because they thought aliens were here. Homes.
8: That's a great one because it falls within my favourite category of people were rubbish in the old days again, really. In the, yeah, I think. exactly. I think the first, the first ever time people went to the cinema or something like that was a, a, a short film of a train coming towards them and people ended up fleeing the cinema in terror because they thought trains were coming towards them, which is, you know, part of the same thing really. But I guess for that to work, it sort of suggests there had never been any other radio drama ever. Was that the case?
11: No there were radio dramas I think with this the problem was the way that Orson Wells had written the script they'd completely changed it so that a normal format for a radio show would have been 30 minutes and then they would have an interruption with a disclaimer going this is a dramatised adaptation for example but the way they'd reworked the actual show was that the first half was 40 minutes so people thought that because there was no thirty minutes, like this is a this is not real, they thought it was actually a news bulletin, which made more people believe. Oh, hang on a minute, this is actually really happening.
2: I know something about this one as well, and why it was that like, everybody got confused is because there was a um, singer on like the other big channel, um, and he started doing really boring songs, and loads of people switched over. <laughs> no, yeah just in like in the middle <laughs> of the fake news bulletins So they missed the like, this is a dramatic presentation and the fact that it wasn't normally like dramatizations in that those days weren't normally done as news bulletins um or didn't try to go for realism and those that combination of things just really threw people completely. <laughs> so really it's all the fault of a very boring singer. It's yeah.
4: as well really, um, we- ten times better than the uh, Tom Cruise adaptation, we can <laughs> agree. Yeah.
6: What you need for this story, the story about this, is you need Richard Burton doing a meta-narrative saying, no one would have believed. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, I got it wrong. You get the picture.
4: Yeah, we have to get him to do... No, right. You would have There's the wrong some- tone in your voice. Movie trailer voice.
6: Sorry, movie trailer <laughs> Oh, no, you can't, no one can do Richard Burton, apart from Rob Brydon.
4: <laughs> <laughs> that's true uh dyer any questions uh, on war of the world
1: no I, it's it's an intriguing story I've, I've read about before um i always see the war of the worlds I, I read when i was much younger um and as you get older when you you look at the original plot and setting you know why people adapt it and move it to somewhere more interesting because it took place in woking and fuck all <laughs> ever interesting ever happens in woking. So you have to you have to shift it somewhere. And I suspect if Orson Wells hadn't been the, the genius he was and had set this around woking people would have just gone oh, fuck off, don't be ridiculous.
4: Although the three of us did go on a day out to woking once. Granted it was to a cemetery. But we could Yeah out to
1: woking. It's the most exciting bit of woking there is. That it's that simple. Johnny, are um, you saying it would
8: have worked better if it was in Guildford then?
1: Yeah, you shift down shift down the road to Guildford, better one way system, better shopping centre, much more believable without question. <laughs> but thank you Stephanie, wonderful.
4: Thank you. Okay, and I'll do one in a minute. But let's go to Charlotte. Charlotte's waiting ages. Hi Charlotte. Hi.
12: Happy okay. to enjoy else's stories. <laughs> <laughs> Which one are you going to give us first? Um so I'm going to talk about the death of Queen Caroline. Unfortunately going back to someone dying but, tragic, but funny. frankly circumstances yeah <laughs> um i should say that when i did this story for a tour i used to do at kensington which was like the ghost eerie evening tours someone fainted um whilst i told this story so be be prepared um, they, weren't,
8: they weren't listening to war of the worlds on their on their phone were they? they may have
12: been yeah probably more interesting than what i was talking about <laughs> Yeah, so Queen Caroline of Arnspark was the wife of George II, um, and she's one of my favourite people in history. She is just an incredible woman and person. Um, She was sort of, when you sort of say, you know, the woman behind the man, that was her. She was intelligent, she was vibrant, she was funny. George II was very boring and very kind of introverted, but Queen Caroline was just incredible. Um, So On the birth of her last child, she ended up with a hernia. And she never told anyone about this hernia. She would never be completely naked in front of anyone. She'd always wear a shift dress and she'd never wear anything too tight fitting. Um, And this went on for sort of 10 plus years. You know, she would have been very uncomfortable. The hernia was getting a lot worse, but she just kept going. Um, And part of that was because she didn't want to worry George. George was a worrier um, and she didn't want to panic him. Um, So then it gets to November um, 1737 and there's a party at St. James's Palace as there always was and Queen Caroline was the the heart and soul of the party and the pain becomes too much Um, and she carries on with the party uh, which you know good going girl um, and then she's just collapsed in pain. So she's know taken off to the the chambers and um, it's discovered and she admits to the fact she's got this hernia. Now we know of a hernia you you can pop it back in and that was also known at the time that they sort of developed recent medical understanding that hernia didn't need to be cut out. So a doctor was called um, and this doctor was a bit worried and a bit scared because George II was freaking out that his, he was about to lose his wife. So this doctor calls an older doctor. The older doctor is about 90-something and was the doctor of Georgia first. So you've got these two kind of older <laughs> doctor's quacks um, coming in. None of them, Neither of them had read the new understanding of hernias. So they come in and think they need to remove it. And they basically start hacking away at Queen Caroline trying to remove this hernia by this point the hernia is it's um internally it's quite grim um and they're hacking away and caroline they do this sort of every day they come in and take a bit more and a bit more every day caroline starts the surgery with a joke she's having a great time she's joking with the surgeons and doctors she's saying to one doctor who was going through a a divorce um, that wouldn't you rather be cutting up your ex-wife um instead of me so she's laughing um, And then there's a point where one doctor's leaning over and he doesn't have enough light behind him. So he asks the other doctor, the older one, to come over. Now, if you're a surgeon in the 18th century, your essential equipment is your powdered wig. So he leans over with his candle and he sets his wig alight. So he's running around the bedroom trying to put out the, the inflamed wig. Caroline says, I need you to stop the surgery because this is too funny. So she's laughing, belly laughing at everything that's going on. Bearing in mind, she's being operated on. Um, eventually they put the wig out and they carry on. Um, the other surgeon sweats so much because he's so worried that he has to keep changing his clothing throughout the whole thing. George, II second is saying, well, is she better? Is, is everything okay? Is she better? I need my wife back. Um, And they're saying, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. They get so worried that when they keep going into, they've gone into her stomach, they've gone into her bowels, they give her an enema. And this causes Queen Caroline's bowels to just explode. And it's sort of said that liquid and all sorts of other things cover the bedding, cover George, cover the walls. It's a disgusting kind of explosion. George, meanwhile, is annoyed that Caroline is still asking for food and is asking for a drink of chocolate that she had every day and asking for mint um, tea and he's getting annoyed because she doesn't actually finish any of it. So he's sort of saying you know well i'll keep bringing you stuff but you don't eat any of it um and then it's obviously once she's kind of exploded she's there for two or three days um and in that time george is devastated and he's sort of saying i'm never going to marry again i'm only ever going to have mistresses um, and Caroline says yeah I know I mean you've already had mistresses throughout our marriage that's fine um, and then she died um, and George was devastated um, and then unfortunately for, for Caroline uh, well not for Caroline, for George um, he then died in 1760 on the toilet um, and their son Frederick was was killed uh, well they believed to have been sort of killed as a result of being hit by a cricket ball so a very unfortunate threesome there and that is the rather tragic, but sort of funny death I
4: mean, of Queen. is like a proper bottom moment, isn't it?
12: Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I mean, there's sort of writings about what was covering people. Um, but you can only imagine that it wasn't a very pleasant experience.
4: And that she wasn't laughing anymore, presumably. God love her. That's not,
12: a- not at that point, but throughout most of the operation and that the operations went on for days, she was laughing. And she was having fun, which, you know, means I I think that's acceptable that we can laugh.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. She found it funny. Why can't we? Uh,
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
8: Yeah, and she didn't have any, there was no anesthetic or any pain relief, was there, whilst this was all going on?
12: No, so she would have been fully aware, fully conscious of what was happening. And as I said, like even when the, the wig is alight, you know he's he's internally operating, and she's telling him stop. i I need to laugh. I'm finding this hilarious, and there's no pain relief. She's completely conscious. Her belly must have been open, um, and she's laughing away.
8: But then <laughs> I, I still quite don't understand why they. I mean, I know you said that they ignored advice that had changed, that said the best mm. thing for Horney was just to sort of put it back in and stitch it up, but. You know, even with my non-medical training, I thought, if I'm going to cut a bowel off, you know, that's got stuff in it that needs to go somewhere. Even I know that.
3: <laughs>
12: yeah, I don't, unfortunately, I don't think they would think that. I think, I mean, there's sort of many sort of theories around it and obviously the understanding of medicine at the time and if you were a barber surgeon or an actual doctor or whatever. But I think for them it was, it was the, the panic Daughter second was putting on them because he was pacing around going, why is she better? I need her to be better.
8: But um, no, I mean, if, if her son hadn't been hit by that cricket ball, there'd have been a massive medical negligence claim brought, probably the first in history, I'd have thought.
12: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably. Brilliant.
4: Um, I have to bring you one now from Bill Dornan, who really wanted to be with us today. Um, he was really enthusiastic, but he's in Hong Kong, so the time difference scuppered him. But he wanted to submit... Sigurd the Mighty is famous for being part of the Viking conquest of what is now Northern Scotland. This is very brief. Uh, Sigurd the Mighty, this is going to make you question how mighty he was given he was still a teenager and uh, his death is said to have been caused. Um, His rival had his head locked off in battle and so Sigurd decided it would be uh, apt to tie the severed head to his horse, and ride home parading it. Unfortunately, the severed head had a snaggle tooth which scratched Sigurd's leg um, and the wound got infected and he died. <laughs> which
10: I <is really laughs> <hilarious.
4: laughs> So he wasn't that mighty. Any questions?
1: Um how sorry, how old was he?
4: Uh it's oh no, hang on, he might have been older. It says he reigned eight seventy five to eight ninety two, the second Earl of Orkney.
9: Okay. Um, Yeah, he was older, Uh, if I remember correctly.
4: Yeah.
9: All right. I I was just saying, if
1: if if he'd been a teenager, he'd have probably been better off sat in his bedroom masturbating or whatever teenagers do. But um, he
4: he was six seven when he was seventeen. So yeah, all right. He might have been mighty, but he wasn't that mighty when he died um, because of a snaggletooth, which I found quite hilarious.
8: Was he he on his horse with no trousers on? I mean, I thought people had big leather trousers or big thick cloth things in those days, yeah?
11: Well, apparently he had the head
4: attached to his saddle as a trophy and it grazed his leg. So whether he decided to celebrate by riding home in the nude, I I don't know.
1: See, I'm I'm thinking just put it in a bag or something. (laughs) It just seems the logical answer, but hindsight and all that, you know.
4: What a dumbass. Right, let's move on to round two. Um, sh- 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 I'm going to go in a different order this time Just because I can't remember the order I used before So go to Kate
10: Okay, so My next one Is about willies Because everyone loves a willy joke, I reckon I Willy jokes always get laugh, don't they? Especially when it's an, at the
4: expense Of a Frenchman <laughs>
10: <laughs> So yeah, I'm going to tell you about Napoleon Bonaparte And his detached penis Um Just the fact that this happened to a man with the name Bone Apart, that alone is funny, isn't it?
4: Yeah, absolutely.
10: Um, So Napoleon's little Napoleon was cut off during his autopsy and ended up in the hands of an Italian priest. I'm not quite sure what he wanted with it, but anyway. (laughs) Don't they say that the guy wanted a, a souvenir?
8: Also, I think I think the Italian Italian priests have got a bit of a record on that type of
10: thing. As well. <laughs> it was it was the thing at the time, wasn't it? You know that they um, they took bits of people. Um, Napoleon wanted his heart to be removed, and he wanted it to be given to his estranged wife. Um, I mean, it wasn't, but it didn't stop him wanting it. And didn't one of the Shelleys keep? somebody's their husband or their wife or somebody's heart ground up in their office in their desk drawer. I mean it's just horrible, but it was all the thing back then. So anyway, this priest ended up with um with Napoleon's penis. Um it was passed about a bit through the priest's family, some British collector um, on sale, I think, as part of a collection of Napoleon memorabilia, I think at Christie's, um, and it didn't sell, which prompted one of the very reliable media outlets to come up with the headline, Not Tonight, Josephine. (laughs) Um, It was displayed at the Museum of French Arts in New York. Um, It was described as, variably described as a mummified tendon, a maltreated strip of buckskin shoelace, as one inch long and resembling a grape, um, beef jerky. It was... (laughs) Apparently it was air dried and in this little leather presentation box. It was described as looking like a shriveled baby's finger and a shriveled seahorse. Eventually, the item believed to be Napoleon's crown jewels was bought at auction in 1977 for three thousand dollars by a urologist and macabre collector. Um, He's also Apparently, he also had Lincoln's bloody collar and Goering's um, ampule cyanide, um, the vial that he took the cyanide from. Um, So this guy bought it for $3,000 and uh, kept it under his bed until he died 30 years later. I dread to think what his wife thought about that, if she knew. Um, Then he passed it to his daughter. Only about 10 people have ever seen it. Um, he wouldn't let anyone look at it. Um, he was a bit protective of it, by all accounts. Um, they did. I think it was his daughter actually allowed it to be analysed and confirmed that it definitely is a tiny todger, but who knows if it's really Napoleon's.
4: Um, so the way I heard it, uh, that invariably these things come up on eBay in places and that it's the French government policy to just buy them all just in case, and that somewhere yeah. in... French archives, there's like 11 tiny little Napoleon great penises.
10: No way, well what I found, I couldn't find anything about, in fact what I found was the French government wouldn't acknowledge it, they wouldn't have anything to do with it, they weren't interested in buying it and wouldn't even acknowledge its existence.
4: Yeah I heard that that's their official line but unofficially they buy them all. <laughs>
10: That's, that's interesting
8: to hear, Alice, because I've got on the wall behind me about fifteen bags of pork scratchings. I could be quids in here if I individually each eBay.
4: I've noticed that you've started turning your dining room into a northern pub.
8: Yeah, <laughs>
4: this is Apparently, like this
10: uh, guy's been offered a lot of money, but uh, sorry, rather the daughter of this guy's been offered a lot of money, like a hundred thousand dollars or something, but won't sell it. I think. A bit weird, maybe. Not only no. that,
4: but if you bought it for th- oh three thousand sounds to me a bargain if you've got three thousand lying around. It's the kind of thing I'd buy just for shits and giggles. But hiding it, <laughs> I mean I would put it all over Instagram. It would be on the internet immediately, <laughs> hashtag Napoleoncock, look what I own, isn't it hilarious. I wouldn't put it under my bed like a creepy weirdo. What were you gonna say Tim?
6: You don't wanna know. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> wondering why first is that the first time you bought cock, and you'd, it would be three grand.
4: Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah.
6: I was just thinking about Rasputin's penis, which obviously has been thoroughly disputed, rasputed. Yeah. Um, apparently, I wasn't thinking about it before that story. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I, um, I have seen a picture that purports to be Napoleon's penis, and it is like a shriveled little date grape thing.
10: In- <laughs> the picture that we found of it, it's the wrong shape. Well, <laughs> that's <laughs> what i There's
6: Back no him. such thing as a wrong Back shape. Him.
2: Everybody's
10: just googling
2: Napoleon's penis (laughs) Apart from Andrew
4: who's just shared with the group That there's a joke in here about a dictator Somewhere (laughs) (laughs) um, James you're right as well on the chat There is uh, the the guy That famously died getting a blowjob As well that was a French uh, I think it was a French Prime Minister And it was this famed uh, sort of courtesan Who was uh, And she literally (laughs) sucked the life out of him Because he had a stroke and died (laughs) While well, she was giving him a blowjob. only in France, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Uh, Tim, I didn't
4: put in that <laughs> one. Any we'll questions?
7: Have a sim lesson.
8: I'm slightly worried, actually, when my wife listens to this, she's going to have a load more nicknames for mine now. Turkey, <laughs> little seahorse, that type of thing. Um, Do they know that it was actually his? Is there any providence to this?
10: Well, supposedly. I believe it can be traced through this Italian priest's family. It was handed down. And then it, I think it was a, a Brit, some British collector of, of antique books or some such bought it. So I believe it can be traced. So I, I think it's fairly reliable that it is his. They did, as I say, they did have it analysed. It's definitely a dick. But then also, <laughs> I don't
8: understand why, been, I ended up, why I ended up in a French... A, a French museum, of museum of art. I mean, I've not seen a lot of French art, and you know, I wouldn't put it past <laughs> But it's not really art, is it?
4: I, I, don't, I just don't wonder none of us have up a butter sauce and eating it. Yeah, frankly, but... I am.
1: Um, I, I, it's. I, I'm I'm delighted we're here just at this point because having done most of these and we've we've covered some enormously weighty issues last week was phenomenal in terms of you know discussing the arts writing the economy also we've got to the knob gag stage of lockdown which is, <laughs> is just so pleasing um, um Kate, i have Kate, um, Kate, I'm
10: Kate, I'm, I'm, a second one because it meant that i could do dick jokes it's yes. it's it's
1: it's good. It's Kate. The only I, I am going to have to this is this is purely a poor punchline, but I'm going to have to knock a mark off because you said memorabilia, not memorabilia, which <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> really perfect. On that note, I'll shut up.
0: If it had been a woman, it yeah. <laughs> oh. would have been memorabilia. To... Yeah,
4: we are we
0: are in.
10: <laughs> See I just, I just started the topic And let you run with the jokes I just, I just set it up for you
4: Anybody else want to let out any dick humour Before we move on No Holmes got up then i was kind of worried about what he's going to do <laughs> And it turns out he's gone for another beer Let's go back To Alina
5: <clears throat> I actually did my research for this one so shock horror horror. It's
1: not the press.
5: I know, right? I actually, um, I'm, I'm gonna tell. It's not that funny, but I'm gonna tell it in a funny way. So I'm gonna talk about assholes. <laughs> this is a good one. <laughs> okay, I'm not gonna talk about milkshake assholes. I'm gonna talk about literal, physical assholes, as in your bottom. So we're going to talk about Louis XIV. Totally out of my time period, by the way, for anyone who knows. One day, the royal physician discovered swelling in his anal area. They... (laughs) I'm
4: cringing already, I love it.
5: (laughs) This swelling in his anal area turned into an abscess and then into an anal fistula. Oh, just that word. Can I just say, I took the piss out of this with Tim the other other day, and we couldn't stop laughing for ten minutes. But I just kept saying, "Anal fistula." (laughs) So now, poor Louis the Fourteenth has an anal fistula. He can't sit down. He can't do anything. He can't go horse riding. He is in some serious, serious pain. The royal king can't sit on his ass. You've got to remember this time period. Personal hygiene non-existent. I mean, the church actually proclaimed that public bathing led to immorality, promiscuous sex and disease. So ladies and gentlemen, don't be going and having that shower tonight because it may lead to immorality, promiscuous sex and disease. The physicians ended up saying that water carried disease through the skin. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is ridiculous. Um, so Louis the 14th only bathed, wait for it, twice, not in a week, not in a month, not in a year, twice in his life. Twice in his life. I mean, you could imagine how much this guy stank. No wonder he had an anal fistula. Um, but on the plus side, he would have regular enemas. So he'd have water squirted up his asshole. So while he has this anal fistula, you know, the courtier people, whoever they were, because I don't know what people did in this century, they sent for a barber surgeon. I mean, come on, people, a barber surgeon? Like, could you ever imagine going down to your barbers and going, "Hey, mate, you know, I've got this walk. Can you please remove it off my ass or something?" Like, what? So yeah, a barber surgeon. His name is Charles François Felix. I don't know. I don't do French. Félix, Félix, whatever, some French name. The guy was extremely worried. So, shit, man, I have to operate on the king's asshole. Like This is so going to go wrong. So what he did is he got 75 men from all the prisoners, the countryside, and he practiced on these healthy people, like operating inside. (laughs) It's kind of gross. Anyway, in the end, he then used um, between three to four guinea pigs a week. He spent about six months studying for all of this stuff. He created some sort of, go on Google and look for the device. It's kind of like, it looks like a really weird dildo sort of operating device that he created. Apparently it's like medicine forward, like a really, really long time forward. But anyway, so it's successful, completely successful. And this is not the end of the story because it actually becomes fashionable to have a fake fistula. So people would have a fake fistula and bandage their asses, so they could follow like the trend of the king. And then some people went even further with this and they demanded, healthy people demanded the exact same operation as the king. Like, I really don't get it, it's so wrong. Healthy people were having anal surgery. <laughs> so there we go, an anal fistula and Louis Fourteenth. And I did
11: my research. Was it you
4: said when you were reading about it first that apparently while he was figuring the surgery out, the people that he experimented on all died while he was playing with their... Yeah, so the people, the healthy people died,
5: yeah. Yeah, the healthy people died and the guinea pigs. I mean, this is, I didn't want to do it because of the guinea pigs and I don't like hurting animals. So, which is why I didn't pick a, a different one for um, so my other one because it was about monkeys and hanging monkeys and I got really sad talking about hanging monkeys. So like, that
4: is hilarious. The idea of the town of Hartlepool hanging a monkey because they thought it was a Frenchman is quite hilarious.
5: <laughs> I know. It's hairy really and little. Sad. It doesn't look <laughs> quite
4: right. Hang it.
8: But also, I mean, the Hartlepool town mascot was a bloke. It's called Hangus the Monkey. And then he got elected as mayor. So he's now the mayor of Hartlepool.
4: So the monkey had the last laugh. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, cool. Alina gives you Louis XIV's arsehole. Any questions?
8: That's quite good. I noticed that 1686 was declared l'année de la fistule as well. I probably didn't pronounce that right, but uh, it even had its own year, which is kind of <laughs> great.
4: The year of the able fistula, only in France. Um,
8: But the bit about bathing is probably correct because it sounds, I know we generalize about the French not washing and stuff, but it's sort of true. But that's why the perfume industry originated in France because they um, were better at covering up the dreadful smells that they got from not washing. Whereas here, so I think Elizabeth I was famous, wasn't she, for saying, I'm going to have it's. I'm, I'm due to have my monthly bath tonight and I'm going to have it whether I need it or not. So we were slightly better bathing once a month or
1: something like that.
4: Any more questions? Dial?
1: Um, I we, we've, we've moved from a, a Frenchman's todger to a Frenchman's bumhole. I, I What else do you say? <laughs> <laughs> it's just... <laughs> I, I really wish I could can, I can add something to this, but I, I think that's it now. I I'm probably going to go home. It's...
5: Is it a better job than the earlier
1: one? Oh, I d- unquestionably, I d- it beats beats Art of War of the Wheel any any day. Yeah,
5: yeah. I, <laughs> did, I did, I did promise, and I delivered. So you delivered something, <laughs> uh, James!
6: <laughs> was the phenom- was the fistula a naturally occurring phenomenon? Do we know?
4: <laughs> uh, I don't know. I did. I googled the word fistula, and it says it's an abnormal connection between two hollow spaces. Such as blood vessels, um, yeah. intestines and other they're usually caused by injury or surgery, but they can also result from an infection or inflammation. Ah. Generally a disease condition.
6: Poor diet, probably. Yeah. It's like leaching from one thing that's meant to be a thing into another thing. It's not like inside that's inside a Frenchman's butt. Nice, is it? No. Yeah.
5: Tim, why are we getting into the details? This is just so. Wrong.
6: You're right. It's, 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 it's supposed to be it's an
5: educational podcast. I,
6: I do apologise. Bring <laughs>
5: anal fistulas
4: to the table and then get <laughs> squeamish.
3: Leave it's your fine. anal fistulas some, somewhere else. <laughs> there I was thinking it was a river in Poland. Who knew?
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> James, try and rescue okay. from the uh, from the bottom end of Frenchman. <laughs>
9: Well, I'm sort of going to follow this up with an, another slightly shitty story, but in a funny <laughs> way. Um, we're going to talk about the grave of the abandoned Rhea. Now This involves George S. Patton, who obviously the famous general, but this is when he was a brevet ke- colonel in the First World War. He's going to this town where his headquarters is, and the French mayor of the town comes up to him really upset, saying, why didn't you tell me about the soldier who died? Now, Patton's quite confused about this, so he goes to where this grave is meant to be. And there's this, what looks like a grave with a barbed wire cross with abandoned rear slung over it. And it turns out that it was a latrine pit or trench that the American soldiers had used and filled back in. And the French mistook it as a grave. Now, Patton decided, or he forgot, to tell the mayor this. So, yeah, we think, oh, that's the end of the story. No. When Patton goes back to France during World War II, he goes looking for his old haunts. What does he find? That the grave of the abandoned Rear was still being looked after and it had been declared an American hero. (laughs) And, yep, he still decided, or he still forgot, to tell them. Now, no one knew this story until, I think, it was after he died or when he was putting his memoirs together or his wife was putting his memoirs together, where he finally tells the story that there's this grave in France that at that time was probably still being revered and looked after, which was really just a latrine trench that was back-hooked up full of shit. But it was called (laughs) The Grave of the Abandoned (laughs) Rear.
4: I I don't know whether
9: it's still there, but...
4: (laughs) I apologise to the people of France for the fact that all of these are at your expense. Okay, (laughs) so the French... uh, Worshipping an American war grave that is in fact a pit. A shit hole. Yes, a literal shit hole. Dire.
1: Um, I, I have no questions other than the observation that as soon as we can get back over the channel, we're going.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
8: <laughs> we're taking That's first on the well, list. and
4: we're going to toast toast at the graveside.
8: We'll probably get there in a bit. There'll be an ultra history society laminate put in front yeah, of it, I no. <laughs>
4: Absolutely. Or that Australian nutter would have put a garden noble, some animal statues
0: around it.
4: (laughs) Behold, the podcast where Alex and Holmes entire alienate the entire World War One community. (laughs) Uh, That could actually have been the funniest moment in history, that memorial to animals at Pozieres, couldn't it? Oh, uh, uh, no
1: comment.
8: I've never seen it. Have I've just I've just it? passed it, but I thought I'm not stopping.
0: It's <laughs> a thing of absolute beauty.
4: It looks yeah. like something that it looks like someone cleaned their nan's garden shed out and put all the tap. it it's, orange it's orange.
0: like a it's like a, a a medium to poor quality collection of garden ornaments.
8: <laughs> well, yeah. it is the um the primary ornament from what I can gather is um, a statue of Saint Francis of Assisi, but it's actually listed in some sort of Home-based catalogue or equivalent, as they, uh, some, some Francis of Assisi bird feeder because he's yeah. got his hands
0: cut where he can put seeds. No, it g- genuinely is. I looked it up. It's 120 Aussie dollars. Uh, <laughs> and said it's a bird feeder.
6: <laughs> Birds loved Francis of Assisi, didn't they?
4: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, right. Who should we go to next? Let's go to. I'm starting to get too drunk to remember who's talked. Emma, do your one.
2: Is this your Pompeii one? This is my Pompeii one, and this is my very short one. The other one was a novel in comparison. Um, So outside of Pompeii, like outside of the city of Pompeii is where all of the big kind of villas are, um, like the very posh, fancy ones. Um, And so they weren't discovered until slightly later than the city of Pompeii that you can now go and visit. Um, But one of the most famous is one um, that has lots of kind of beautiful frescoes that survived but the only important thing that you need to know about it and the only thing that I'm going to say is that the last person to inhabit this house as discovered from the kind of bits of paper and pottery and stuff that they're left behind with his name on it was called Publius Fannius I rest my case <laughs> I see
4: now why you didn't want to tell the guys what you'd gone for beforehand <laughs> Dyer, you are laughing hilariously. <laughs> it's
2: a win, isn't it? Because we're British, it's
3: absolutely going to win. I, I don't add...
2: see how it can't, to be honest. This man just went around and his name was Peebly Spanius for his whole life.
1: <laughs> I do, what sort of time did he have at school? I mean, i just terrible. I mean... <laughs> it's. It, I, I, I'm, I'm adding, I'm adding the 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 silly schoolboy giggles to the incredulous face. I no further, <laughs> quest, no further questions, I'm afraid. That's it.
10: That's
2: the whole story. homes. <laughs> Any questions?
1: Please tell me there's a there's a blue plaque that people have selfies taken under. If there, if there isn't, there should be. It's.
2: Unfortunately, I don't think there is. I think people go on a lot about the kind of frescoes and how beautiful they are, and nobody really, everybody's trying to be very grown up about the fact that his name was Publius Fannius.
0: <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite difficult to keep a great face around Pompeii because there's knobs everywhere, aren't there's there? There's weirdies yeah.
2: everywhere. If yeah. you go to the is... Museum
0: in Naples, they've got a whole section devoted to.
2: My favourite thing to do with people when we go to the British Museum and um, I once did a small tour of showing people all the willies in the Roman galleries of the British Museum because I know where they all are but there's a very tiny gallery uh, like not gallery but like what's where display right the very very back um, of the Roman gallery which has all of the willies in it Um, and it has one thing which is called a Tintinabulum, which is a um, it's like a wind chime but it's a giant winged penis with and the penis has a penis and its tail is a penis and then it has little penises dangling off
5: of it <laughs> there's a similar one in Pompeii um, yeah. in, the, yes, in the cabinet yes. I love that one and I've won um, I want a friend of mine who actually works with metal work to try and make me one so oh I, I can hang it with Oh God, no, I would Garden. love
2: one. I would yeah. love we one have have so much. You know what,
5: Sophie Emma?
4: Well, when she was on, exactly, I'm going to on make one.
5: <laughs> I'm going to make one for Alex, one for you, Emma, yes. one for me and one for Sophie Hay, and we're going to be the quartet of <laughs> things. <laughs> we'll be the coolest people in the world. It's <laughs> yeah,
0: like... the most expensive thing the British Museum's ever bought is the Warren Silver Cup, isn't it? With... Willy's all over it. Well, well you got yeah.
2: They're very will after Willie and everything.
1: Just, just on it. Just in terms of in terms of where the world is and that businesses are gonna to have to diversify, I reckon <laughs> I reckon Summers is gonna open a garden center with wind Willys. willies. That's what you need. Yeah. Diversify. Well, I've, obviously, I've
8: obviously misunderstood Anne Summers over the year as well because I didn't realise he was selling replica Roman and Greek artifacts. <laughs> <laughs>
4: You didn't realise it the was be a cultural societal addition.
6: <laughs> if we continue to call them willies, then we'll just compound the idea that they were never symbols of virility. But um, also, I mean, this all goes back, and be I'm sorry. taking the wind out of that out of that <laughs> 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 not
4: Call them willies back then.
6: There was a reason for that. That's why they were everywhere.
11: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> yeah. Who came up with that? It's not exactly. Uh, yeah. It's.
6: Napoleon,
8: I think. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I mean, sticking up for Napoleon wasn't it? it I, I'm sure i read somewhere that in Roman and Greek times, that and the reason that you see the uh, the penises and stuff in the British Museum—they're quite small—is that in those days, a small penis reg- was regarded as a sign of intelligence.
2: Yes, but large Perhaps penises yeah. were barbaric and um, and ugly, and and a sign that you weren't a, a Proper civilized person. Still true.
1: Still true. <laughs> 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 I mean, everything sounds better in metric anyway. But just...
4: <laughs> let's see if we Hand can confirmed. go. Let's see if we can get anywhere away from people's gender. <laughs>
2: uh, I tried to get us onto Fanny's, but apparently that yeah. didn't <laughs> work. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm, I'm
4: going to go to Lockie. This one? is actually. Uh, quite I, I like the pathos of the idiocy and what it resulted in so give us your second one.
0: Oh yes, yeah, mad well it's it's an amazingly happy story fundamentally so it's not just like a horrible death or or, or something like that. i yeah i mean also it's probably the first historical event i remember as well essentially we we're getting to the the fall of the berlin wall which in and of itself is not a laugh out loud moment but it's something to be very happy about um it's it's kind of ties in two themes that i like as well which is world changing history and total befuddled gormlessness um uh pretty close to my heart and essentially like let's we go back to 1989 East Germany and it's chaos. Um uh, they uh, certainly second half of it is they had elections in May, um and there's widespread ballot spoiling, everyone's unhappy. Um the and and yet they record a, a voter turnout of ninety eight and a half percent and everyone's voted for the SED. <laughs> what everyone knows that rubbish uh, and so people are out on the streets from that moment on um we get into august and some of the other eastern european countries are prepared to test the water with you know what can we get away with with gilbert in charge and hungary opens the borders with austria right Soviet union does nothing all right so east germans start flooding down to these uh countries where they can get out um Either piling down to Czechoslovakia where they can get to uh, the West German embassy or, or out to Austria and thousands go. So it is chaos. Um, we rumble on. Uh, we get into October. Because everything's brilliant in the, uh, in the East German Republic, they decide to go ahead with their 40th birthday. Um, massive party and parades. Republic Day, 7th of October, is huge. And um, Gorbachev's there as well. Everyone's ch- chanting his name. Uh, and Eric Honecker is still in charge. He's um, 146 years old uh, by this point. Uh, it's true, I've checked. And um, but, the, but the protests are massive. 70,000 out in Leipzig. Uh, and we rumble on. Um, we get to the point where, middle of October, Honecker gets the boot. Um, and uh, Egon Krentz, uh, who really should be a ghostbuster, uh, I think, um, gets put in charge. Uh, but still thousands are leaving out through these Eastern European countries where the, where the borders are open uh, and away they go. And we get into November and the protests are now out of control almost. Um, Leipzig on, on the 4th of November is 500,000 people out. Alexanderplatz Berlin big estimates like 750,000 people out on Alexanderplatz and it's all mad um 50,000 East Germans leave the weekend of the 4th or 5th um on the 6th the 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 East German regime decides we're gonna we're gonna release some some information that's going to allow some travel so not everyone's just pissing off Uh, And so on the 6th they do, and it's just basically the same old crap, slightly rehashed, and everyone recognises it as such. The following day, two-thirds of the Politburo quits, uh, the Prime Minister jacks it in, Egon Krenz is still there. It's utter, utter mayhem in East Germany. And who's the man that they turn to in their time of dire straight um they've, they've managed to hash together some new travel documents there's still some like, extensive criteria that people are going to have to meet to, to 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 get to travel overseas but um on the 9th um they hand this message over in the form of a piece of paper um kind of handed over to a, a man called Gunter Schabowski um or the big Schabowski if you want to call him that <laughs> Um, anyway, Gunter, who was he? He was, uh, he was, he was in the Politburo. He'd been part of the team that had nudged Honecker out. Um, he was probably like second or maybe third in the regime, as, as far as it was. So he's he's a bit. I want to say he's a bit like our East German equivalent of Dominic Raab, possibly, <laughs> possibly with a bit more about him. I don't know, um, but he's, he's he's kind of that. That figure, and he's been doing like a few press briefings, briefings, kind of in the run-up to to this moment, and so he's going to give a daily briefing or so, and it kicks off at six uh, in the evening, and it's mostly the same old crap. There's 53 minutes or so of it just being the same. Old, oh, blah, 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 we're going to do this, and then someone asks about the you know the travel arrangements. They they arranged on the 6th, was that a mistake? And so he gives a really vague, nothingy answer, and it all just rumbles on. And you can see the room getting restless. Um, the, the 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 journalists are there, and he's quite unused to kind of giving a briefing in, in like the Western style anyway. Um, but he remembers he's been given this document, uh, this piece of paper about the briefing about the new travel Um you know lifting of restrictions and, and people being able to move around uh, and so he thinks oh there's there, there's been a new uh, law right? i'm surprised you don't know about this and all of a sudden there's a little buzz uh, around the room you know all these journalists are like what new travel regulations no right so all of a sudden there's a little murmur Uh, around uh, and he pulls out this piece of paper he wasn't in the meeting in which these all these regulations were were kind of put together but essentially i can't remember the exact word in the document but there's a few different points in there Uh, and one of them is yeah travel's going to be allowed between east and west germany (laughs) what people people say you know around the room is that is that across the inner german border is that going to include berlin as well and he's he's looking at his piece of paper and says well uh, it says here that it's going to include all the, all our checkpoints, including Berlin. Hey, eh? um, some more journalists put their hands up, and one of them asked, "When? When? When? When's this going to come into effect?" And he, he's still looking at his piece of paper. He's looking around to the to the others to to, to check. As well, as far as I can tell, um, immediately, effective immediately, without delay. <laughs> And And so all of, all of that, then there are some more questions, but the 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 cat's completely out of the bag now, and all the kind of other restrictions that people you know are to have to apply for whatever and do this, that, and the other. that gets put out on the evening news. East Berliners see that we can travel now. 20,000 people pile down to the Ballholmerstrasse gate alone. The whole city is out piling down to the border crossing um, places and and saying, well, Gunters, let us cross. You know, he says, we're fair game. It's good to go. The the border guards have had nothing. Uh, Bear in mind that their orders are still shoot to kill. All right. But all of a sudden, there's tens of thousands of people standing in front of them. Um Strasse is the famous one. And, they, and there's a second sort of character uh, to my moment of absolute hilarity, besides Shabovsky himself with his, uh, don't know. Um, uh, and that's one of the border guards at Bolholmer Strasse, Because if you look at the, um, essentially, the, the long story short is obviously that they can't get authorization to use lethal force on this massive crowd especially with western cameras there uh, and so one of the officers at Straße opens it up uh, and lets people start moving through um, and you've got there's there's a, a fellow one of the east german border guards at Bornholmerstrasse has this look on his face which is he's it's like he's been run over by the freight train of history <laughs> and then picked himself up and then been slapped in the face with the wet fish of, of destiny or something and, and his world is coming to an end and, and just you know, I, whenever I see his face I just can't help but laugh so uh, my, my funny moments, Shabovsky's look of
1: I'm uh, affected immediately
0: <laughs> and, and our mate at the border crossing just going everything is changing now and i'm <laughs> completely helpless um,
4: oh and people think see. people think the government now are lunatics <laughs>
0: <Hodes,
1: laughs> yeah. and um, i it sort of feels sort of quite fitting that that 45 years of, of oppression and and general sort of grimness just comes to an end I fuck up. <laughs> I literally, literally, yeah. just it, it, it almost it was such a, it was such a profound event. I mean, you know, I think.
0: But you can. A fair sort of few of imagine... us
1: remember watching on TV.
0: You can imagine sort of Krent's off the scene with one of those hooks to kind of grab him <laughs> and kind of <laughs> and honk him it's off. Like
4: that hideous drama where <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland's like the Secretary of Agriculture and everyone dies and he ends up being president and he's like, "How did this happen?" It's like <laughs> that. <laughs>
3: I don't know if you're familiar with how it happened recently in Ireland where we accidentally made gay marriage legal but straight marriage illegal Because Because the legislation has to be written in Irish as well and we mistranslated that bit Uh, And that was also the same day we made class A drugs legal for one evening So yeah
6: Hang on, you got everything right just for one day
3: Yeah, basically (laughs)
8: <laughs> another, also, there hadn't been another <laughs> balloon flight the night before, had there?
3: <laughs> <laughs> no comment.
4: <laughs> Only if it was in Cork. It wouldn't have happened in Dublin, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Stephanie, you've got <laughs> another one for us, haven't you?
11: I do. It's not really a, a hilarious story. It's more of an idiotic story. Um, but basically, during the Cold War, as we know, the um, Russians and the Americans spent a lot of time trying to spy on each other to find out their secrets and in the 1960s the CIA came up with a rather interesting idea on how they could try and gather sensitive information from the Russians which apparently cost the American taxpayers 20 million dollars and it was called Operation Acoustic Kitty and basically they would take little kitty cats and would insert or implant, and I'm laughing, microphones and radio transmitters and thin wires, not thick wires, because they might have seen the thick wires into the cats, um, and then send them off into, you know, Kremlin and Soviet embassies so they could spy on the Russians, basically. Um, and apparently during one of the um, initial tests runs, they um, dropped a cat near a Soviet compound send it off to spy on some Russians and unfortunately it mindlessly walked into some traffic and died instantly. Um, I can't so laugh at out that, out, that's a dead cat. <laughs> and turns out, like, curiosity really does kill the cat. <laughs> Do
4: you know what this reminds me of the one we did for World War Weird about um, Hitler's dog army, about how the Nazis, because who doesn't laugh laughing at the Nazis, about um, how the Nazis were trying to train battalions of dogs which is stupid, but not half as stupid as all of the idiot Nazis touring the facility, um, convinced that not only do these dogs actually obey the commands to like, do military shit, but they can talk to them. And it, like, there's scenes of these women thinking they're having a conversation with a Pomeranian about military strategy. Um, it reminds me of that. But yeah, Holmes, Dyer, any questions?
8: It's funny you should say that because I was re- in the Second World War. The Russians um, basically trained—they strapped mines to dogs and they trained them to run at tanks because um, it's quite hard to um, blow up. You need to get underneath the tank to blow it up, basically. And so they spent ages training these dogs. They strapped mines to the back and then they they would run at tanks on command. But as soon as they went into Actual operation on the battlefield, they'd only been trained with Russian tanks, and so they were the only tanks that they recognised. So as soon as they were sort of let loose, they ran straight towards their own tanks and sort of headed underneath those.
5: Brilliant. Okay. It's, um,
1: it's um, I I, I kind of like to think that somewhere in there, that at the beginning of this story, there there is a room full of of, of boffins sat round going. So we've tried, you know, X, Y, and Z. What next? And the little bloke at the end of the table puts his head, I've got... Oh, fuck, no, not the cats. No, please. (laughs) And eventually they just... But they just give up and eventually, yeah, all right, yeah, okay, we'll do it. Uh, uh, we, can we go home now? Yeah, I'd
8: love it if that bloke turned up every day with, like, a cat T-shirt and had a cat mug and a cat calendar. <laughs> and a
10: cat
4: You know what, though, Holmes? Your cat and my cat, look at my cat right now on the video feed. If you said to my cat, right, B, I want you to go in there, do this, come back out, bring me the information, he'd just roll over and go back to sleep and go, I'd get the equivalent of the kitty finger. There's no way a cat can work for a living.
8: No, I'd get that. And also, if I go back to my sort of Russian dog analogy, my, my cat wouldn't fit under a Russian tank. He's too fucking fat. <laughs> <though. laughs>
4: <laughs> it's true. Although it does have that obsession with squeezing itself into a little fruit box, which is quite
5: funny to watch because it's like a <laughs> fruit box.
4: Anyway, uh, right, we are almost there now. We've got two more, I think. So, uh, Tim, you got another quick one for us?
6: I do, and it is fairly quick. Uh, don't know the background, really. And actually, I don't know if the story's that funny, but I think the way we, we fill in the gaps here might be quite funny, possibly. Uh, sorry, I'm just quickly finding uh, the uh, story. So, uh, one of the presidents of the United States in the mid-19th century, Jackson, Andrew Jackson, hadn't heard of him before, um, famously had um, a funeral. I mean, that wasn't necessarily the famous bit, but during the funeral... <clears throat> his pet parrot apparently decided to chime in with a few obscenities in mid-19th century uh, United States of America um, and emptied the church with uh, shocked um, attendees. So I just want to know what that parrot was on about, and we'll never know. But also, like, you know, swearing back then would have been really different, wouldn't it? Like It would it have been something like, darn it, or something like that. <laughs> really, really, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is and they'd have all run out ran out of the church. Okay. Um,
4: Brilliant. I thought you were going to go down my the hall and had a big block of cheese from <laughs> the West Wing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Who takes a parrot to the funeral? <laughs> well,
1: <he does>. <laughs> 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 cheese. It's yeah.
12: cheese to the yeah. funeral.
2: Where did this idea of cheese come from? There's not there's no cheese
4: at the funerals. Shut up, drunk lady. <laughs>
6: <laughs> <laughs> the parrot had like its own maybe it was on the um, what do they call those things? I was going to say parapet. parapet. <laughs> 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 Did someone, uh, say
3: you know, does <laughs> someone
8: say cheese? But there's not much about this. When when I was Googling random things that we may have to research, this is one thing that came up. <coughs> and I was desperately trying to find out the words that he'd actually used, but it didn't really... I couldn't find it anywhere. It wouldn't oh,
6: repeat boy. them. They were so awful. Words <laughs> like... Uh, <laughs> Gosh, you'd never find them in the literature.
4: Oh, I really that's become my mission as a historian now to find
6: <laughs> it's much easier.
4: Fucking parrot said, Go on, just make them up. Make them up. Yeah, do it right now. Go on, somebody do a parrot. Impression. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to be the parrot? Go on, Tim,
5: you're supposed to be the actor. Polly oh, got a cracker. Oh, Polly got a cracker. Oh, got
4: a cracker. Oh. Is that James? With that the, was James. Um... Oh, God, James, you're so impressive. London,
6: With the uh, apparently, its name parrot. is Paul. Paul. P-O-L-L. Ah, hmm. to- oh, Mr.
5: Johnson, the idiot from Berlin is calling. Ah! <laughs> <laughs>
8: That's not that rude. We were far racier on Napoleon's cock, as I remember
4: it. But James hadn't been on the cider then. Uh, (laughs) I love that. The offensive parrot. It has become my life's mission to figure out what that parrot said. It's got to be written down somewhere. Shit like that doesn't happen and no one writes it down. Someone at home has gone, oh, they've gone, I've got a right to so-and-so and and tell them about this parrot. This was hilarious.
6: Son, son, you won't fucking believe this. (laughs) At someone's fucking funeral, and there's a fucking
4: parrot in there giving it can't this and cant that. <laughs> it's brilliant. Oh, did it, What happened to Poll? Does does Wikipedia tell you what happened to the parrot?
6: Uh, I think it went on to be president of the United States.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the monkey
12: After from he chopped,
6: um... he exhumed? <laughs> yeah. They yeah. chopped off two of his little claws. So
5: <laughs> kept... And <laughs> his cock
4: and put it
6: on ebay right who's David, left charlotte sorry charlotte
4: no 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 go for it if you if you have to <laughs> it's fine parrot. she's enjoying the parrot
12: <laughs> yeah it, it, my story does not compete with the parrot or any of the others really um yeah so i work in maritime history um at lloyd's register and there are a, a lot of Funny stories every day. At the moment, I'm obviously I'm still working, and every day there are some fantastic innuendos with ships and books. I found a book the other day called Little Tugs, uh, which was brilliant. Um, but I'm kind of veering away from that and talking about an incident that happened at one of our offices in the 19th century. Um, so a guy came for a meeting, and it was a boozy lunch, um, and he got very very drunk with um staff at at Lloyd's register Um, and he left very angry we don't know why and we're, we're kind of digging through our archive trying to find out why he got so angry with Lloyd's register so he came out of the office and he went out of the building and at the top of the steps we had these two beautiful marble lions and they were a gift from our first surveyor over in Italy Um, and they were based on the Medici lions um, over there in Florence, I think they are. So beautiful things. Anyway, so he left the building. He's very, very drunk, very, very angry, and he decides that he's going to push one of these lions down the stairs and smashes it to pieces. Um, I don't know how he did it because the one that survived is incredibly heavy, but anyway, he smashed it, stormed off. Uh, Don't know what happened to him. Don't really know why. Uh, And then the staff at Lloyd's Register were kind of running around in a flap, apparently. Going, oh my God, the lions are smashed. We've just been given them. What do we do? And so they box up all of the pieces of every little piece of the lion and they send it to our surveyor in Italy. And our surveyor in Italy just opens the box and just sees his pieces of his lion, all kind of broken, um, and sort of says, you know, what the fuck has happened here? And he's... Well, they're, they're sort of, <laughs> thankfully he sends a replacement um, and we still have both of those lions at our office. Um, but yeah, I don't, we don't know why the guy got so drunk and so angry that he smashed one of our lions. Quite funny.
4: Have you got any like <laughs> hilarious insurance claims at Lloyds?
12: Ah, so, <laughs> so we're not the insurance company. We're the other one. Uh-huh. We're the classification company.
4: Any funny um, ship names then?
12: Yeah, we've got some, we, we found one the other month and we didn't know what it was called but it had six H's. So it's H-H-H-H-H-H-H, hooray. And we didn't know why it was H-H-H-H, hooray. Um, we still don't. And we also have the story which we I've only just found of a surveyor who refused to go on a ship because there was a lion on the ship so he wouldn't go and survey the ship. Um, because yeah, the lion was angry and was going to attack him, apparently. Oh, blame him
1: to that's be honest not unreasonable yeah <laughs> it's, it
8: sounds fair but when, when Lloyd's come round to, Lloyd's bank come round to redo our, our buildings insurance I, I do that similar really, really. <laughs> <laughs> I use, really from a distance my cat in the back garden you know.
6: yeah
12: yeah that's smart
4: <laughs> <laughs> let's go to Andrew for those. I've got one more to chuck on really briefly afterwards but uh, Andrew's got another brilliant one uh, in which he's going to laugh at Austrian people this time
3: Yay. Well, the French have been c- taking a bit of a battering, so we might as well move slightly east. Um, so uh, this is like, I suppose, it's classic military history cockle. Um It's the Battle of Karen Sebes, which mm. sounds like a children's television program, um, <laughs> but I assure you isn't. Uh, so Karen Sebes, or however you pronounce it, is a town in Romania, and this takes place in 1788 ah. during the um, Austro-Turkish War that was going on at that time. And the Austrian army is being led by the Emperor himself, and they're marching towards this town to defend it, and they send out a scouting party of hussars to investigate the surrounding countryside, and the Hussars arrive at this small village where they're then sold several bottles of very powerful schnapps. Uh, The Hussars get absolutely plastered. Another scouting party has been sent out the other way, and they end up arriving with the Hussars. and the Hussars at this point are hammered, and they start defending the schnapps shall we say they um i guess form a wagon fort they barricade the schnapps and they start fighting off the infantry and at some stage a musket is fired uh, now this is heard back at the main austrian army uh the, the austrian army at this point is a bit of a misnomer because it's made up of lots of different nationalities you've got all sorts of croats austrians hungarians all sorts together maybe not speaking the same languages so they hear a musket in the distance and they start panicking and thinking it's the Turks. Now, back at the village, the Hussars mount up and start charging back towards the Austrian army. The Austrian army sees these horsemen in the dark coming towards them, immediately think they are Turks, and open fire on them. Uh, The Hussars then charge through the camp. Um, At some stage, several officers are shouting, Halt, but with their accent, it sounds like they're shouting, Allah, So things get even more confused. At at another point, the Holy Roman Emperor ends up in a ditch. Um, It's probably for the best. Uh, He's thrown from his horse, apparently. And the Austrian army inflicts one of the most catastrophic defeats of the war on itself. itself. (laughs) Uh, Because they spend the whole battle fighting. The the estimated dead is 10,000. Like you're talking... (laughs) (laughs) This is a major loss. Um, they retreat, obviously, in disarray and probably embarrassment. Um, and the Ottoman Turks turn up two days later to the battlefield and go, have we already fought? Th-? Oh, and they just wander into the town of Karen and capture it. Uh, now, for some caveats, no one's sure if this actually happened because there's a lot of question marks as to whether or not you can actually fight your own army for an entire night and how drunk you have to be to do that. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, it's, it, it's kind of... It, the most ultimate friendly fire incident ever, essentially. <laughs> idiots from Cork would manage it, though, am I right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to have a lot of Cork people listening, so I'm never going to get booked in for, you know, for a gig in Cork ever again. <laughs> I,
7: have to, I have to say, as an imperial rationalist, like, all stories of Austrian incompetence are great for you to Holmes, <laughs> Dyer,
4: any questions? Well,
8: on the one hand, I... I think there may be some truth in it, as you and Andy and Johnny will definitely know that one of the problems with the Austro-Hungarian army in the First World War is that languages. they spoke Turkey languages between yeah. them. And <laughs> hardly anybody, you know, even the officers could only speak one or two languages top. So that in itself suggests that confusion could happen. But I think, as you suggest, there's no written record of this until about 40 years after the event.
3: Which Yeah, now is that shame or... Well, they try and say it was shame, but you know
8: we don't know ultimately.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's it's, um, it's it's a story that the, the, when you're telling it, the expression "several powerful bottles of schnapps" <laughs> just just elicits the result. Well, this is going to end well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah.
4: <laughs> uh... Go on, James. You said there's proof that it happened.
9: Yeah, this this battle, the numbers. Are probably exaggerated, but the reports from what we got of the battle is that the Ottomans managed to take up um, positions on the Danube and basically do a great line of defense. So we knew something had happened at the battle. We don't know the details, but it does seem likely a friendly fire incident, a lot of confusion. Because if it hadn't happened, the, uh, the Ottomans wouldn't have been able to take up those positions and then later advance so there is some proof for the story we just don't know for sure how many casualties I think some in the end say a thousand is a good bet but yeah Either
4: way I think incident is understating it a little bit
5: plus <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. fuck seems yeah. more
4: apt um, but just also,
8: <laughs> you would have to be phenomenally pissed for that to happen I mean I once went on a stag do where we had two curries in one night and as a group <laughs> None of us could remember the first one, but I think this is going further than that.
5: (laughs) Mm.
4: Right. Okay. Just before we finish, um, I'm going to add Rasputin's death scene in the mix as well. Uh, (laughs) December 1916, they decide uh, a group of aristocrats that they're going to off Rasputin. Um, So they try and poison him. They give him poisoned cakes and poisoned drinks. um, And he just eats the lot and drinks the lot and nothing happens. So they're like, shit. So he says, I'd like some wine now. And they're like, poison the wine, poison the wine. So he drinks three glasses of this Madeira and nothing happens. By which time they're like, dude, he's a fucking witch. This is epic. What are we <laughs> going to do? Um, so they shoot him. And in true Hollywood style, uh, they're, all, they're all looking at him and thinking, boom, job done. And then he lurches up and goes, oh, and he's not dead. Um, <laughs> at which point he runs away. Um, I think they chase him and then they. Um, end up wrapping him in a carpet and dropping him in the River Neva, And it's said, and if, if anyone's going to give me historical evidence that's going to ruin this story, I'm not interested because I want it to stay exactly the way. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently when they unroll the carpet and find his dead body, he's drowned. So he was still alive when he went in the water. Do you know what makes this the most hilarious moment in history? The fact that the guy behind this is Felix Yusupov. The only person mm-hmm. in Russia richer than this dickhead is the Tsar. So why the hell did he not just hire a hitman to begin with? <laughs> <laughs> why, why the four botched attempts at his own stupid, slightly effeminate hand when he could have just <laughs> paid someone to get rid of him for him? Who knows? Guys, any
6: He's oh, actually you... chopped his willy off.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you would have I reckon you would have yes. needed more than a pair of nail clippers like with Napoleon Rasputin. Apparently he was hung. All myth. But is that myth? Um, Which one of was in Rome he learned it means he was uncouth and barbaric.
6: Napoleon was neither short nor small and Rasputin was uh, was killed eventually. I think the argument has turned on me
8: and Johnny's analysis on its head now. But...
10: Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think we've actually drunk more than ever on this show tonight, it's great. Um, no, There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Rasputin didn't wash either, he was either stinky, even stinkier than Louis XIV, I think, um, yeah. and proudly so. And yet Russian noblewomen still wanted to sleep with him, apparently. But magical magical
5: lack of
10: intelligence,
1: Wherever floats your boat,
10: the relative size of his uh, manhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bit is bit. Kate, Kate <laughs> has become our designated
4: penis expert on this podcast. <laughs> 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 so expert. Expert. Yeah. yeah, you are the asshole expert. Yeah, um, so <laughs> progress, I know.
6: keep doing this for as long as you need to. There isn't a big enough cross section. Yes. Yeah.
4: <laughs> right on that note Holmes and Dyer have you been conferring while you're deciding who's won let's go around the room um if you can't have one of your choices who's won it
10: for you uh Kate oh my god I don't know um probably I don't know maybe Rasputin
4: <laughs> boom James
9: um, we've gone through so many um, I think I'm going to go with the Pope one It's not the funniest Pope one I've heard But it is definitely up there so. <laughs>
4: The whole weekend at Bernie's Dead Pope
3: maybe. Yeah it's a puppet. Uh, Andrew Which Andrew? Oh me uh, <laughs> I don't know any, any story that involves Someone literally exploding from an anima is pretty good
4: it's so. <laughs> very cool.
3: Just in terms of mental image,
7: that's fantastic.
4: It's the best ending, isn't it? Jimmy? Yeah.
7: I think I'm going to go with Austrian incompetence in the current service. <laughs> yeah,
4: I think I am as well. Just the fact that all these, the, the mental image of all these Austro Hungarian shit faced soldiers walking around shooting each other. Uh, yeah, what a way to go.
2: Emma? I. Um, I'm going to go with the Austro-Hungarians as well, just because I like to imagine the moment the next morning when they realise what had happened. (laughs) (laughs) And presumably (laughs) when they had had a conversation about
3: that. (laughs) As the emperor climbs out of the ditch and goes, guys! (laughs)
2: yeah, (laughs) What's happened here, lads?
12: (laughs) Charlotte. Um, I think I'm going to go for Louis's Arse.
4: Who oh. <laughs> yeah. so doesn't
12: want that? <laughs> the fact it began a fashion trend in scabby
4: assholes. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. let's
12: bring it back. Obviously, <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, who doesn't want an anal fistula, Lockie?
0: <laughs> um. Yeah, there are some excellent Australian military historians out there on the First World War, but there's a lot of crap ones as well that I've had to deal with. And so the Emu War definitely
10: <laughs> yes. takes it
0: for me. Just this idea that the colonial Superman, um, invincible against the Germans, gets gets his ass handed to him by a bang of walnut-brained birds is quite nice. Actually,
8: who
6: <laughs> that? Tim. Uh, tempting as it is to go with excrement vagina i think probably (laughs) i'm gonna go with charlotte's description of queen catherine so well told um and the fact that she loved catherine herself thought she was the funniest one
4: (laughs) 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 actually laughing her own (laughs) ass off uh, right up to the point where she exploded stephanie um i'm
11: gonna go with Um, I think Alina's story about the anus just because I think she had so much joy telling it to us
4: (laughs) (laughs) Never has one woman been so entertained by
5: an asshole in all her life (laughs) (laughs) Alina Look, I'm going to be really biased, I mean I love James and I always pick James out of principle because he's such a diamond and I loved, actually I loved everybody everybody had a great one, I'm really biased and go for my own Speciality, because obviously the Second World War is the best subject in the whole wide world. I'm going to go for the Class A knob, aka (laughs) he is a Class A knob. At no
4: point, at no point, from beginning, middle to end to consequences, was there ever a point, Lockie, where it was a good idea. Yeah, Yeah, he did
5: it anyway. (laughs) <laughs> was yeah, he was just the biggest knob ever And I love his Knobbishness so yes I'm going to go for her However much everybody else is really awesome
4: Brilliant okay Dyer what say you You're
10: You're on mute,
4: mute. Mm. Isn't it? It's funny,
11: the more people... I'm in in control of
1: this, honestly. It's it's been hugely entertaining, as always, um, and some some fantastically well-told tales. Um, I think, actually, if we briefly revisit, I think we had a a previous candidate on on another podcast that if we were just voting for biggest twat... There's, there's, a, there's a category, oh, there's a subcategory. Bunyan, <laughs> Bunyan yeah. I, th- I think, I think we, we get a short list. We go, we've got Bunyan, and now we can put Hess in there as well. If we just go history's
9: biggest and twat. And
4: Julius Caesar. And Genius no, Caesar.
9: And you forgot the priest that lost to the brothel. Uh, then, <laughs> uh, there's, 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 there's definitely another podcast in there. So
1: Hess, Hess gets a, a, an, an honourable mention without question, um, as does the Emu War, just, just for sheer mad futility. <laughs> Absolutely loved it, um, but obviously we're going. Andrew and I have, uh, have consulted. We're going we're gonna to do this in reverse order just to increase the dramatic tension because we've all had a few as well, obviously. So, um,
4: if you can count I'm, backwards after the amount we've all drunk, more power to you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, so I think uh, I think in third, um, we're going for the ship grave.
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
8: oh
1: and uh, now I'll hand over to my, my co-judge. Uh,
8: secondly we're going for Louis the 14th anus,
5: <laughs> Thanks.
1: the winner by unanimous decision is Napoleon's cock <laughs> <laughs>
5: Second, mm. yeah, oh,
2: there's a <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Alex, which oh, one of you? We've
8: not shown our most maturist side there. <laughs> really. I'm, I'm
4: that means the I've also you. got to design a cocktail called Napoleon's Trot. <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
2: At least you haven't got to do Louisiana. That, that was part <laughs> of the reasoning.
1: <laughs> I, um, I would add, I, I don't know whether it's it's a subconscious thing, but just in terms of, of the mindset, we've, we've we've all been, you know, without a pub for eight weeks. The ability to sit and quaff a few beers with, with like-minded folk and make knob and arse gags. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's, it's, it's,
1: it's frankly all you need from life.
4: Yeah, we have taught nobody anything they need to know <laughs> We've all had a right like, uh... laugh. wasted two hours on listening to this. apology. <laughs> Please come back next week when we'll try and be slightly more sensible. But these are deteriorating into just drunken loutishness more and more as the weeks go by so if lockdown carries on much longer we expect the arse and cock jokes to rise exponentially <laughs> 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 right guys thanks so much uh, it's been a great laugh um, oh God, I've got to try and remember what's on over the weekend now
5: Oh, I wait 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 Alex weekend. before you go before you go I want to be really really awkward to somebody in our chat right now and this person's going to hate me for the rest of their life
4: Fine, but I'm just gonna edit it, but go on.
5: No, it's fine. It was Stephanie's birthday yesterday, so I wanna publicly say happy birthday yesterday.
4: Happy birthday.
5: birthday.
9: Happy birthday birthday to you. (laughs) Happy birthday (laughs) to you. Emma would
5: give you a cookie, but she
9: can't.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine a really good cookie. Yeah. Double (laughs) choice. Be like
9: Sammy the squirrel.
4: But I like the cookie (laughs) James is wanked on like one bottle of cider
9: (laughs) Oh no, I'm not wanked. I'm tipsy (laughs) tipsy. on two right,
4: join us over the weekend When at some stage we'll be putting out Six different uh, American history ones You get a Revolutionary War podcast The Texan Navy uh, One on Abraham Lincoln One on women of the NYPD, uh, a World War II one about one GI um, and why he's got a church named after him. And then one about the early history of the CIA and why that, frankly, is full of stuff that could have made it onto this podcast tonight before they actually got their shit together. Uh, So join us for that. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm
6: Horatia Hornblower and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulation is very clear in the matter.
7: It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise.
6: You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both.